going on everybody there's wrong real episode 521 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard and today we're going to be talking about my favorite movie from director Robert Altman a movie that I think is one of the best movies of the 1970s and one of the best westerns ever made and you know when we're talking westerns there's really only one man on this planet that I deem worthy to dive into the genre apart from Tony Stella if he'll ever come back and join us for a uh, kind of a three-way on the subject but we got the great David Lambert back in action so Mr. Lambert welcome back to Wrong real i uh, thank you it's great to be back yeah it's uh it's been a couple weeks since i've recorded an episode the last episode i did was the what uh the films that made gidget fidget episode which it's gonna be a tough one to top because those three hours of talking with a very saucy aussie about erotic cinema so you've got a, a very high uh high bar to uh to overcome in this uh but i feel like with all the conversations about whiskey and hookers and frontier life etc there's a good chance that we can get back into some exciting terrain well, I don't know if there's anything more erotic than you and me talking about Westerns. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, people, I mean, when you and I start talking Westerns, people, like, their underwear just hits the floor, just sopping wet. They're just, they're just ready to go. But what have you been up to since we last spoke? Was our last episode the Peckinpah knockoffs? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Peckinpah knockoffs was the last one. Well, what have you been doing in the, uh, I guess, three or four month interim during the, the season of the virus? Uh, not a damn thing. Uh, not, I mean, uh, not much, not much. Um, uh, I, I have a project with the, um, uh, the Cupeno and Luceno Indians, uh, that live around this area that I would like to get off the ground. So I've been talking to them and consulting their historical societies and stuff. So it, it is this would be a, kind of like a literary endeavor or a filmmaking endeavor. What is, what is this project? Uh, it, it would be a short film. Cool. Uh, that would have some of their history as a backdrop, but then would go in, you know, different directions. But um, it's, you know, it would be 
uh, a Western, but around this area where I live, which is, you know, um, Southern California around like, you know, Pachanga and Paula. Would it be a modern day Western to save money on creating the period uh, flavor? Or are you going to go all in? Oh no, I don't do modern westerns. It would it would be uh, like around 1903. Interesting. All right. Well, that's perfect yeah. for uh, the subject we have today because it's an interesting thing where I feel like there's a lot of different kinds of westerns out there, but it seems like in the 70s suddenly the western started taking place just a little bit later when like the kind of traditional era for the western was kind of dying out. But as we've discussed before in our episodes about Sam Peckinpah. A lot of times, no matter what era the story might take place, people are like, oh, well, the real West was like 20 or 30 years earlier. Like, no, like, no matter what era it takes place in, you're never like in the real West. But I do love these transition Westerns where you start seeing things like automobiles showing up in the, in, in the context of the story. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, my definition of a Western, which is still kind of uh, loose, I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not super hardline with it but for me it's like anything west of the mississippi river uh between i would say uh the mexican war and the mexican revolution or okay. or the start of the uh uh or the uh, start of the revolver i think once you're before the revolver i think it's less a western and more of a frontier when did when, when, when did the revolver technically kind of enter the hands of gunslingers uh in the 1830s with the patterson okay. colt revolver it's a it was a five shot uh, weird looking thing. Um, but then it really started to like in the Mexican war, they, they, the six shooter came about the first six shooter, uh, which was a, uh, the, uh, Walker Colt, which was this huge monstrosity. And then, uh, but anyway, it's like, to me, once they have six shooters or, or at least five shooters, revolvers and stuff, then it then it becomes more. Yeah, like someone a makes a movie about the Lewis and Clark expedition, even though it takes place out west. It ain't a western. It's something. It's something different. Yeah, I mean, kind of. I mean, I, I, it's like a pseudo western. It's kind of its own subgenre, like the frontier western, like a Jeremiah Johnson or a Revenant or whatever. Or like They're Northwest Passage western. by King Vidor. Northwest Passage takes place out west, but doesn't really feel like a western. Yeah, they're they're western. They're Western adjacent, you know. Well, what if it takes place in the great Northwest, like in the context of McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Because we're going into strange territory where we have a movie that's it's rainy and it's snowy and it's like wet and damp and it's full of people with the runs. But it's I think there's only one cowboy hat in the whole movie. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, for me, is one of the most unusual Westerns. And of course, people always say, oh, it's an anti-Western or it's a this or that. It's a Western. It just happens to be a very distinctive and original Western. And I, I don't get too tripped up on um, my kind of rigid categorization of what falls into the genre. Yeah, no, it's definitely a Western. It's a revisionist Western, but it's definitely a Western. It's not It's not an anti-Western, I don't think. It's. Uh, it takes place in the West and it's not like, it's not necessarily unique in terms of the setting uh, you know, snowy, mountainous westerns have always been somewhat of a staple. So, you know, you have the far country and north to Alaska. And, and the Great Silence. Yeah. and Yeah, Day of the Outlaw and stuff. So it's not... Joe setting, Kidd has uh, some snow in there as well. Or at least it has like those fake kind of Teton backgrounds like throughout. I really enjoy Joe Kidd. It's kind of an obscure Clint Eastwood western, but it definitely has some some snowy landscapes. Yeah, I mean, um, and and uh, even Shane is not, you know, not like some cactusy tumbleweed western. It's still, yeah. 
near the mountains. And, and we snow. are going to have to do an episode on Shane at some point because I read that book and it's one of the great reading experiences I've ever had. I can't recall ever being as gripped as I was while reading about a simple passage of two guys trying to remove like a tree stump from the backyard. You would think, oh, that's pretty conventional domestic nonsense. Like, who cares? And it becomes as epic as like World War II, like these two guys <laughs> teaming up trying to take on this this stump. And yeah, if for anyone out there who enjoys reading westerns, Shane gets my highest possible recommendation. Oh yeah, definitely. I'd love to do an episode on uh, just the overall like Johnson County War. So that would be starting with uh, the Virginian to Shane to Heaven's Gate because Signing they all. Up. Anytime, I, 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 that would be right up my alley. Well, before we dive into McCabe and Mrs. Miller proper, anything going on in the world of art that you've been working? I mean, you've been have you been persuading any lovely young ladies to take their clothes off for your for your craft as of late? Uh, yeah, somewhat recently, but I just haven't honestly gotten a chance because I'm still working and everything. So I I have um, not gotten a chance to really work on a whole lot of artwork recently. I've I've been um, doing other other boring things so gotcha well i'm fired up to hear more about your short film anytime you uh get further down the trail on that but let's start transitioning into McCabe and mrs miller as we, before we started recording you were talking about how you think it's kind of unfair and kind of absurd that people neglect the book or sleep on the book in particular director robert altman so how did this story come into being get, take people back to the early days before there was a movie what was the genesis of this film uh well yeah, I mean, the the whole structure of the, the film, uh, I mean, direct passages of dialogue, I mean, everyone kind of emphasizes how um, improvised the movie was, and it's very improvised, but it's, it, it's like the characters are all there, the structure of it's all there, the beats are all there in the book, um, the, the weird sort of offbeat nature of it is all, it's all in the book, but uh, what... What Altman does is he's sort of he he pushes certain elements and he also like takes things that are maybe more underlined in the book and, and makes them more subtle. So, uh, you know, he, his achievement with it is great. Um, and the book is not like one of the great Westerns, but it's a very um, interesting original book. It was written by a guy named um, Edmund Naughton. And uh, he was a police reporter and he would drink with all the cops. And so he knew he knew the cops. He knew the kind of these a lot of scummy characters and everything. And uh, he he basically said he just transposed these characters that he was always seeing, the criminals and everything uh, to the West. Yeah, I mean, so much of the movie, at least, feels almost more like a prohibition era, like gangster movie, as opposed to a Western in terms of some of the, the quote unquote bad guys that enter the story. And I've always found that to be one of the most interesting things is like, if you just like period crime stories like The Untouchables, you don't have to go that much earlier to suddenly find yourself in McCabe and Mrs. Miller territory. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, uh, I think the, you know, a lot of people, you know, the film, like, I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, an expert on Robert Altman. I've seen maybe about six of his movies, but they kind of say, well, it's very much like, you know, the um, anti-capitalist views of the film or the anti-organized um, religion views of the film. Um, and and uh, all these other things are, are, you know, coming from Altman, which I'm sure he agreed with these ideas but they are all directly from the book in fact 
the book is way more forward with uh, its anti-capitalist, you know, uh, leanings. And it was written in, you know, uh, 1957 or 58. Well, what's interesting is how the bad guys definitely play into that theme. But for small, kind of small guy entrepreneurs, there are some scenes in this movie that I find to be incredibly inspiring. Probably one of the best sales pitches in movie history is when Julie Christie makes her pitch for why she, she and McCabe should go into business together. So I feel like if you wanted to have a different read on it, it's like, oh, but this is like a pro-entrepreneurship kind of movie, at least when it comes to like a, a small individual trying to carve out a living. I, I don't think it's completely, totally like some anti-capitalist screed, but it definitely when it comes to the powers that be and the way they just will put a bullet in you just as soon as negotiate with you, then there I can see some of those themes at play. Listen, Mr. McCabe, I'm a whore and I know an awful lot about whorehouses. And I know that if you had a house up here, you'd stand and make yourself a lot of money. Now this is all you've got to do, put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house so you won't lose nothing. And we'll make it 50-50. Uh, excuse me, you know I already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, oh, you can't call them crib cows, whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. Well, uh, I don't think you're going to find my clientele up here uh, too interested in that sort of thing. They will be once they get a taste of it. I'm telling you, with some up here to handle all them puntless properly, you can make yourself at least double the money you make on your own. Uh, what makes you think I ain't thought of that already? Uh, them tents, you know, it's just uh, temporary. What do you do when one girl fancies another? What How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies? Because they don't. What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? You're going to do that? Would you? Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. What about when, when business is slow? You're just going to let the girls sit around on their bums? Because I'll tell you something, Mr. McKay. When a good org gets time to sit around and think, four out of five times you turn to religion, because that's what they was born with. And when that happens, you find yourself filling the bloody church down there instead of your own pockets. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to sit around and talk to a man who's too dumb to see a good proposition when it's put to him. Do we make a deal or don't we? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, like M McCabe is definitely a, a, a capitalist or business a small man, businessman. Business yeah, <laughs> um, and 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 it's more pronounced in the book that he has disdain for the um, mining company in the book and in the screenplay. Uh, he goes, he specifically goes to the town of Presbyterian Church because uh, the closest town, Bear Paw, is controlled by the mining company, and he doesn't like. He doesn't like them. So, um, you know, whereas that's kind of softened in the film, you don't get the idea that he dislikes them. Yeah, he, like he talks about he wants to get away from partners because he keeps getting all these offers to partner up. And he's like, it's, it's like, I don't mind deals. It's partners I want to get away from. Yeah. So, um, uh, and then so Edmund Naughton, eventually he had to move to France. And that's, I think, where he spent the rest of his life because I, I guess it was like uh, revealed that he was gay. And so then <gasps> he, had to, he had to leave the country. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know. But uh, what's interesting is um, the film has such a very specific feeling of time and place. Um, it never like underlines exactly what the period is, but there are certain hints that I'll get into when we talk about the movie itself. As yeah, like to the when script it says late 1890s, but I think it was in the um, 
commentary track on the Criterion Blu-ray where Robert Altman says 1903, or maybe the producer does, but for people out there who are physical media buffs, strongly recommend the Criterion Blu-ray for this movie. It doesn't necessarily have like exhaustive special features, but you got a great interview with Vilma Zygmunt, a great commentary track with Robert Altman, who's like nearly on his deathbed, but still so clear and so sharp. And you've got a pretty cool documentary where they interview some of the actors. So yeah, it was, it was definitely well worth throwing down like 25 bucks for it to add it to my collection. Yeah. Even if you only have, uh, like, you know, six bucks to spend on a DVD, uh, the, the DVD has his commentary track. So the little crappy, um, cardboard, flip case. I mean, so, it's incredible. Uh, oh, Robert Altman worked to like his dying day. I mean, like I know that he had Paul Thomas Anderson around to kind of help in case he were to suddenly just drop dead on the set of whatever his, uh, prayer home companion in 2006, but his last movie was released in 2006 and he died at 81 in 2006. Like he, I mean I, that I have a, a ton of respect for I mean, he didn't really get his filmmaking career really up and running until his early forties with mash. He had made a ton of TV and a ton of films before that, but MASH was really his arrival as a, a major, quote-unquote, major player in Hollywood. He was one of the distinctive voices of the 1970s. Usually, there are not a lot of stories of directors finding their stride relatively late in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. Well, just out of curiosity, how come you haven't seen more than six uh, Robert Altman films? Because I really like Robert Altman. I don't worship at the altar of Robert Altman. But when I was in college, things like the player were just massive, and uh, it just people were really like rediscovering him because he was having a big comeback in the uh, in the nineties. And I have not seen all of his best movies. I've been kind of saving California Split for a rainy day. I, I hear that's one of his best films, if not the best. Uh, maybe Nashville is. Maybe it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But it's one of the things where I've seen lo- a lot of his movies from from the late 60s through the early 2000s. I've seen a lot of the films from different periods. How come you haven't done more of a, a deep dive into his work? Uh, I, honestly, I don't know. It's just, um, uh, I mean, I've liked a lot of what I've seen. Some of it is hit and miss. I think... Um, I mean, he's got some I, awful movies. Like, Dr. T and the Women's one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen, so I'm not going to make the case that he's got I've, some... I've never, I've never seen that one. I mean, Dr. T and the Women's, yeah, it's beneath contempt. So he definitely was all over the place in terms of his ups and downs. I, I think oftentimes, for me, it can be just uh, subject matter, I guess, of, of, you know, something... You know, I, I'm I'm so busy watching westerns. I, I guess. All right, I, fair, <laughs> fair, fair enough. I will never argue I, with your obsession with the genre. Well, I honestly, so like, uh, you know, I, I guess we could talk about the, the book a little bit more, but I, I'll, I'll talk about maybe my relationship with this movie initially is that, you know, when I really first started getting into Westerns, um, I'd always heard so many people, oh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, one of the best, one of the best. And I'd already sort of uh, had at that time sort of a dislike of Robert Altman. Uh, he always kind of came off as sort of an asshole. One of the things that I really disliked is like, um, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, I was, I was a guy, I was getting into Westerns, but I loved like just action films, violent movies, stuff like that. And, and, uh, he had this quote after September 11th where he like blamed it on action movies where he oh, was like, that's, yeah. well, yeah, he, it's funny because like, yeah. he flew like 45 bombing missions in world war two. So I feel like he earned the right to say whatever the hell he wanted to when it came to armed conflict. However, I would not I would not share that view uh, about the connection between 9-11 and action movies. Yeah, yeah. He just had this quote, like, they wouldn't have done that had they not, like, seen it in a movie or something. I don't know. That's it, yeah. And, okay. uh, so, you know, I, you know, as a young man, I was like, what the, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And 
you know, Scorsese, you know, everyone got mad at him because he doesn't like Marvel movies or whatever. But had anyone seen like, you know, had social media been more of a thing in 2001? Uh, people would have uh, lost their shit without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, ah, what, this guy who, you know, and I, I just sort of had this like a version like, oh, it's going to be this sort of like fruity anti-Western or whatever. And uh, so I but I rented it. I was like, oh, I got to see it. And I, added, I actually ended up, you know, liking it, not like totally falling in love with it. Um, but then just, you know, seeing it again and again and again. And, and, and the more times I saw it, like the more I fell in love with the movie. Same it's here. Whole- like first time I saw it was at the Clemens Library UVA on Laserdisc, like under the worst possible conditions, like in a little cubicle with like fluorescent lights overhead that you could like, that were reflecting on the screen. But I think what changes as you watch it again and again is how all the little scraps of dialogue in the background, which I was blown away, but just, I didn't read the full script. I jumped around the script, like uh, to just different scenes to see how they compare. But everybody talks about Robert Altman's overlapping dialogue, but the script has all those little fragments and different scenes, like different voices from coming from different corners of the room. But if you watch the movie multiple times, you start to get so in like enthralled by the secondary and like kind of third level characters that populate this town. And you get these little mini narratives within the movie and that's what really makes this movie grow and live and breathe, where you're really seeing this community come to life over time. And I can't think of a lot of movies that pull that off. Oh, yeah. No, very few do. And that's one of the benefits of kind of maybe reading the script, which is widely available, is that a lot of those like mumbled things that everyone kind of complains that they can't hear or whatever, you can start to make them out. And, you know, like it's a lot of that is like delineated in the script. The script definitely talks about ad libs and all that stuff. So, um, you know, you can kind of piece out a lot of the dialogue, uh, that is said overheard barely in the film. If you actually read the script, um, but more than probably any other Western, um, this has the best sense of time and place. And when I rewatch it, I feel Less like I'm watching the story, which I still am, and I feel more like I'm just visiting a place. Like it's almost like a, you know, like it's almost a, it's almost like a vacation in a sense. Like, uh, you know, within a couple hours, like you're 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 trans transported there uh, more than any other Western, and and that's a big thing, especially coming from me. It, it's just the um, the artifice of so many other Westerns is t- totally you know scraped off. So anyway, um, in, in the getting back to the book, um, the book actually opens with this, uh, you know, this preamble that says, you know, this story happens in no definite time, uh, place and no definite time. The characters in it belong to the American West. That is a living myth. And like everything in the book, they're of the whole fabric of my imagination. So that's Edmund Naughton. You know, he, he puts that beforehand. So it's interesting that he doesn't specify exactly where it takes place or exactly what period it is because the movie has such a specific sense of of uh, time and place why, why do you think the book is no longer and i mean the, the the mysteries of the publishing industry always it always kind of blows my mind that like things can kind of go in and out of print and i guess you just need a publisher who's willing to spend a couple of grand to do like a little limited run but when i was trying to find the book 
and I was finding copies. Uh, the cover's gorgeous, but I was finding copies for like two hundred bucks and three hundred bucks. And kind of late in the process, you told me that it was part of some three pack, but even I couldn't even find that. It, it, it was frustrating to me that this book was so out of reach. But there are plenty of people on eBay that are capitalizing on the fact and selling it for a couple hundred bucks a pop. But do you have any theories as to why this movie or this book has uh, f- kind of fallen out of circulation? No, I honestly, I honestly don't know why, but uh, it's it's a thing that happens with a lot of a lot of books, like the authentic death of Henry Jones, which is the basis of One Eye Jacks, and then you know the unofficial basis for a lot of scenes in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is also um, you know hasn't been reprinted. So I don't know. I guess the movies don't ever don't give them the you know the uh, the uh, second life that maybe they should have. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think that don't... any book that's been made into a movie would have just like, I mean, my brother who works in the publishing industry, even if a bad movie gets made of a book, it just, you know, you immediately slap the movie poster on the cover of the book and it just helps with circulation dramatically. So it just really surprised me that this, I mean, obviously the movie was not a flop, but it re- dramatically underperformed at the time of its release and it's taken decades for it to become this acknowledged, I mean, it went from cult classic to acknowledged classic over the last couple of decades. But it, you would think there's at a minimum criterion would just put the book like in part of like a box set with the blu-ray i mean when i've got my eric romer box set of the six moral tales there's an eric romer book right there in the uh, in the package and i feel like criterion would be all over something like that yeah and it's not really that long of a book but i mean the the tip that i found um is is uh when i was able to purchase it and it was years searching for it uh, until I found this tip, it, it, it's in this collection called Man's Book. <laughs> so, so it's a man's book. It's this uh, really crappy, sort of like pulpy uh, collection of three books. One is Strike from the Sky, one is McCabe, and one is Steady Boy Steady. So, um, you know, maybe try uh, for the last one. That sounds really like it might be gay porn, but uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, they all, yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. So, um, it, 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 it's definitely, um, been treated as kind of this pulpy, uh, nonsense, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I was able to, I think, pick it up for like maybe about 25 bucks, um, in this collection. So if anyone really wants to, um, wants to read it, uh, I think that's the, the best way to go about it. Um, maybe cool. search for the other titles um, and uh, steady and, boys and, uh, steady and just don't look under Pornhub because you never know where that might take you <laughs> well let's start talking about when this movie starts coming together in terms of screenplay getting the stars on board getting Robert Altman on board um, obviously in 1969 I believe is he 68 let's see MASH comes out in 1970 so yeah he had, had a giant flop that cold day in the park in 1969 but MASH massive runaway success and has a lot of people who became stars, but were not necessarily stars yet. I mean, you could say Elliot Gould was on the ascent, but people like Robert Duvall were not. They were relatively unknowns, but MASH makes Robert Altman a, a player, so to speak. And it employs a lot of the techniques that he would get into a little bit of trouble for on McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Tons of naturalistic overlapping dialogue where the audio is kind of drifting in and out. Obviously, audience members never really seem to have a problem with that, but technicians hate it when you're recording dialogue and you're not giving clean sound to the technicians to work with because they like to be able to separate all the audio files and then uh, or audio tracks and then lay them, lay them on top of each other as they like. 
And then he had Brewster McLeod, which was beloved by Leonard Cohen, which would play a role in scoring the right cell of the music in the movie. But kind of, that movie kind of flew under the radar. But he was still considered a very hot new director who was very bankable. But what do you know about his coming on board the script and luring in Julie Christie and Warren Beatty because Julie Christie and Warren Beatty were the two of the biggest celebrities in the world and they were boning at the time. So getting them to appear in the movie was a, a major get because also for a director who was notorious for not working with movie stars, suddenly he's upping his game and working with two of the most recognizable celebrities in the world. Oh, well, I've heard different stories about how they got involved. Um, uh, I've heard that you know, uh, that, that Julie Christie was actually signed before Warren Beatty and that he had, uh, read, uh, Brian McKay's draft of the script. And, and then he jumped on a plane from England to LA and supposedly that's the story uh, it's on the, on the Blu-ray they talk about. Yeah. How he flew over and like basically they made a deal like in under 48 hours. Yeah. I've heard different things though, like that he was signed first or that he'd seen mash or he'd st- or I've heard, I've, I've, I've heard different things. Beatty claims that he got Julie Christie involved, but, uh, everything else I've read is that Christie was involved first. Supposedly he told Brian McKay, your words brought me, you know, 7,000 miles or whatever. But uh, what well, what's interesting is 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 from the book and, and and then Brian McKay's script and I'll kind of jump between the things that sort of develop between the two of them. Um, there was a Ben Maddow script, uh, and now Ben Maddow had written the Asphalt uh, Jungle. Love it. That's uh, a great flick. And, yeah, good John Huston movie. Yes, and um, so you know uh, the 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 book is like. Um, What's very what it's very interesting is that it is about this Pudgy McCabe character. He is not uh, your typical Western hero. He, you know, uh, he starts a brothel. He starts selling opium to the Chinese. Um, he's completely ill-equipped to deal with uh, what is what is going to be happening to him. And then it also has this character of Mrs. Miller, who is very similar to the finished film, uh, is a very strong-headed, strong-willed woman um, who, you know, uh, holds her own, who, you know, comes into town and stuff. The, the, the difference, I think, between the novel and, and where the script goes is that the whole thing where, you know, uh, the building up of his business, um, you know, when, when he's first starting, when he starts his own, when he starts his own bar and everything, uh, he, it, it all happens like in a paragraph in the book. So, uh, you know, in one paragraph, he moves from being a regular dealer at Sheehan's, um, to starting his own place, to starting a whorehouse, to Mrs. Miller arriving. That's all one paragraph. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's no scene of him going to buy the whores or anything like that. The chippies, uh, in as the he book, calls them. Yeah, yeah, chippies. Uh, in the book, Mrs. Miller is not Cockney. She's, you know, she's an Easterner. Um, you know, uh, and then the name Mrs. Miller, she's not actually married. She wears a ring to be more respectable. But uh, she kind of dresses him down. She has the whole jockey club cologne line, you know, from the film is there in the book. In the book and even in the script, McCabe is a little bit more uh, – he's able to handle her a little bit more. They have more banter. Um, he's, he's just slightly more competent in the book than – and in the script than in the finished film. Like So uh, when Sheehan, who in the book is described as uh, looking like a ferret, so like Rene uh, Abergenois 
is like perfect casting because <laughs> like yeah. no he nails it it's some of his best acting of his career and it's a pr- pretty early in his career as well but he became a uh, robert altman regular moving moving forward yeah i mean but even beyond just like his just acting just visually he looks like a ferret like yeah. you know that's the guy rest in peace but uh you know perfect perfect casting i know ned Beatty was considered but i, I think he was uh too young or something yeah he, but i mean he pops so, up in nashville and he's incredible in it and Ned Beatty's one of those guys who always looks fifty, no matter what age he is. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, for yeah. whatever reason, he, he he didn't make it into the into the film, but he would have been a great addition. Yeah, definitely. So so um, so so that so that's there in the book. You know, uh, the the company is 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 more of a presence from the beginning. Uh, once they start the whorehouse, uh, Mrs. Miller goes off with the company men because they can buy her things that McCabe can't afford. Uh, she never brings any other other like high class prostitutes. Over there, McCabe always just has three prostitutes. And uh, in the book, she's not an opium addict. She's uh, an alcoholic. And and the company, once they send a company man to make a deal, that happens like 23 pages into the book. So it happens very early. Um, the book actually starts right before the big gunfight at the end. Um, he McCabe is like waiting around and he's hearing this cowboy playing golden slippers on a banjo. Um and then it flashes back. Sheehan has more of a presence. Uh, I mean, he's definitely in the movie a lot, but in, in 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 the book, he comes drunkenly into McCabe's. He's always felt betrayed that McCabe started his own place. You know, yeah, um, he wanted to be partners early on, and makes kind of a, an unsuccessful pitch to him. Yeah, that scene is not in the book. The, the whole that whole partners scene, but uh, at one point, um, Sheehan goes into uh, McCabe's bar drunk, and he tells him, you know, you're going to be killed by the company. You know, Sheehan becomes a company stooge. Um, in in the book, uh, the the anti capitalist stuff is there. It's they have a character of uh, this socialist uh, Swede. <laughs> uh, he's called the socialist Swede in the book, and he basically lays out everything that the company's going to do. They're going to build a smelter. They're going to kill the vegetation. They're going to dirty up the creek. Uh, they're going to get everyone on company script. Um, it's established at the company, like that, that, the, that the Catholic church in Bearpaw is run by the company. Um, the marshals are run by the company, uh, and that the company is going to come suck the, suck the town dry, uh, for the East and then abandon it, which is, you know, something that happened uh, everywhere. So everywhere in the West. So it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's more laid out exactly you know what they're gonna do and the character of Elliot the preacher and stuff he's in the book too um and so it has you know very much an anti-clerical anti-organized religion stance you know that the that the movie has anyway so it goes and then there and and there's the end gunfight that the the three killers are are very much the same uh Butler is not uh British in the book he's a southerner who hates Yankees and McCabe is this you know Yankee character yeah, I mean Robert uh, Altman just grabbed that guy on on a whim. He, I think he worked in real estate or something like that. But he he just thought he had an interesting look and an interesting way of expressing himself. So he got cast, but he wasn't. Even, I don't think he was even a working actor before he got put in no. this movie. I've heard I've heard different stories about how he got cast. One of them is that Edmund Naughton, the author of the book, was in Spain and saw him running with the bulls. Oh, interesting. And- said you're my butler and and like uh sent a sent uh, a letter over to warner brothers that got passed on to robert altman i don't know how, that, how true that is because i've heard other things too but that seems very that seems very specific not to be somewhat true but it also at the same time is a weird uh you know why would they even 
consider. Well, the good news is he nails it and just crushes the role. So however he got in front of the camera, <laughs> I, I'm a fan. Yeah, supposedly they had to they had to give him a lot of vodka or something. Yeah, well, he's he terrifying. Was... He's op- acting opposite Warren Beatty, who's a massive superstar. He'd already done Bonnie and Clyde and like Splendor in the Grass and all these all these movies in the '60s. So if you're a, an inexperienced actor or just a non-actor, yeah, you better get liquored up. Otherwise, you're just gonna get blown right off the screen. Yeah, yeah. And so um, you know, it, it, in the book, they they kind of use this weird, crazy lawyer guy who's more of like an old man. His name is like I think Clark Tucker or something, and he's um, he is. It's kind of established that he might be kind of out of his head. Uh, that he has his own, like he's independently wealthy, and he only like fights the company just because he wants to. Um, it's just sort of his pastime. And uh, so when McCabe goes to see him, uh, which he does not after being threatened, he does it right after they make the first deal with him. Uh, or, or, or right after he rejects the company's first deal, he goes to a lawyer and uh, the lawyer basically just tells him they're going to kill you. <laughs> and uh, it's a very weird scene. It doesn't feel quite realistic, but in many ways, the novel is a little bit more like um, directly ironic um, and more directly mythical in a way. Um, it lays out the themes. It really underlines the themes a lot more than the film does. That's sort of a, an interesting aspect. They go to the marshal and stuff, not because the marshal is going to protect them, but just so that they have already like sort of put it on the books that the company is trying to do this thing, trying to threaten him and stuff. Um, the book gives so the book gives him motivation because he doesn't like the company, but the book gives him a little bit more motivation too because the company uh, is trying to buy his holdings for half of what they're actually worth. So when you read the book, you're, you're less like, Oh, McCabe is an idiot for rejecting this offer the way that you feel in the film where you're kind of like, Oh, he's yeah, dumb. Like you, you can see it happening in slow motion. Like, Oh, just, he's kind of, he's not playing this moment the way, to the best of his ability. And he is sealing his doom as a result. I think one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole movie is when he's sitting next to across the table from a guy who's been hired to kill him. And McCabe is basically laying out this compromise that he's, that he's cooked up in order to make everybody happy. And the guy just says, I don't make deals. And you're like, Oh yeah. fuck. Yeah. And the way he says it was such finality. That's astonishing. And you're like, all right, he is a walking dead man, or at least these guys are going to all, this movie's going to get bloody in the very near future. Yeah. But how much did you ask them? For? Uh, well, we never got around to that because, uh, I, Oh, uh, well, I, I might've mentioned something like 12, $10,000, something like that, but just to get them bargaining, you know, and, uh, and to, uh, well, just so they talk sense. Yeah, but how much did you really want? Uh, well, uh, that depends. I mean, they're they talking about all my holdings. Um, eight thousand. Eight thousand dollars. Uh, oh, seventy-five hundred. Probably more like, uh, more right. You went very far apart, were you? Oh hell no! That's what I'm trying to tell you. You see, uh, and I don't know what to mean by all my holdings. I mean, uh, all my holdings. Does that mean? Uh, my horses, my clothes, my underwear, I don't know what to be. Uh, well, the fact is, uh, shit, I'd be willing to make a deal for uh, sixty-two fifty if they, if they don't count my, my personal property in that. And, uh, I mean, that's uh, provided that they uh, they buy my inventory separate. How much is that? Well, three fifty. Three hundred. Three hundred. 
and then you, so you got the uh, three hundred to sixty five. So that's a uh, uh, sixty five fifty, sixty five fifty. Well, let's just make that an even sixty five hundred, and you got yourself a deal. I don't make deals. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the, one of the great scenes in the film, and it's like, and it's one of those scenes that you know you wouldn't really see up to that point in a western of the hero being back down so much you know uh in in the book and in the script he's he's much more competent like you know early in in the book where he first goes into town and does the card game and and uh sheehan is telling everyone he's a gunfighter he's got a big rep and it's established the reason sheehan's doing that is because he's been backed down by mccabe and made to look foolish in front of everyone so the bigger that sheehan sort of exaggerates mccabe's rep um the uh, the better Sheehan looks. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Yo. Yeah, at least it Gun- doesn't it doesn't look like he's getting pushed around by some by some dumbass. Yeah, I guess in the movie, he does have his moments where he seems like on a small scale he'll do just fine. The way he sets up that poker game, the way he negotiates, how you know, obviously, if the the the, the innkeeper's not willing to share his losses, then he's not willing to share his profits. But the way he very quickly negotiates, all right, I'm gonna buy a bottle for the table. You can make your profits off whiskey, and I'll make my profits off the game. Like he seems pretty savvy on a small time level. And then obviously, once Mrs. Miller rolls in, she she knows the whore business, and she knows a lot about whoring, as as she states so explicitly. So he seems a little out of his depth as this wildly successful enterprise kind of blooms up from underneath him. But he definitely increasingly seems like a bumbling idiot the moment that he's dealing with these guys who are trying to buy out his uh, buy out his property. But I mean, he's not John Wayne. He's not Clint Eastwood. But he does kill three killers at the end. Like he, he's not like he's like some knucklehead kind of bumbling his way through the movie. Even though he dies in the process, the fact that he is able to take out all three of these guys, I feel like he hangs on to some dignity up until the bitter end, even if it is ultimately a tragic film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, the film sort of establishes this hierarchy of uh, intelligence where at first you're like, oh, yeah, he's fleecing these rubes. He's kind of got this under control. Then he goes and tries to get these whores and negotiate, and and it's like he, you know, he has a guy who basically puts him in his place to a certain extent. So you're like, okay, maybe not. And then Sheehan comes in and tries to strike a deal. And, but I love and, that insult he has for the guys. Like, listen to me, you son of a bitch. All you got to do is tell me how many spare chippies you got in there, you goddamn butternut muff diver, and I'll tell you how many yeah. I need. Like, goddamn butternut muff diver. That's what, if you're not listening carefully, you'll just miss it outright. But it's a great insult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know. And then once again, Sheehan tries to make a deal, and he puts him in his place. But immediately, immediately, that's undercut by the uh, by the uh, prostitute stabbing the guy, and and you kind of realize like maybe he's you know he, you know he's completely out of his depth. That that's a horrifying scene because so much of this movie is just an absolute pleasure where you're just in ecstasy with like these like the great rack focus shots of flowers, and you're hearing all this beautiful music, and people are arriving in the town, and you're watching the town come to life, and then suddenly. You'll just hear this horrible scream as this really innocent hooker is stabbing a guy with a knife over in these like these awful tents. You're like, oh my god, like this is a rough, brutal, just ruthless existence. And that girl, of course, earlier we had that really, really sad scene. She's like when she talks about how she needs to go to the pot and she doesn't know how long she can hold it. You realize this girl's probably never even left the house before, and now she's thrown into this camp full of these savages. And I love how quickly this movie can turn on a dime going from moments of just total euphoric beauty to just brutal realities so quickly. And I think that's just – that's Robert Altman 
in his prime, just proving that he's a, a master storyteller. Yeah, and then even in that scene, like McCabe comes into town with the whores, and he starts putting every, all the rubes in their place. You know, we need this built. Blah 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 blah. You know, he's showing his his dominance over all these guys because they're building this place for him and everything. Uh, and then immediately that's undercut with her. Like, you know, I I've got to go to the pot and I can't, I don't think I can hold it. And so much of the movie like actually hinges on like going to the bathroom or diarrhea and stuff. Yeah, uh, everybody's got the runs. This is, I mean, <laughs> this is, this must is be the first. Yeah. Half the mud that. in this movie is just probably human waste. But yeah, I, I, I love just how like the stark reality of these these poor girls living in these tents, and I think that's there's no there's no word that is better illustrated than when Mrs. Miller arrives and she walks up back and she looks out and she sees the tents and she sees the way these girls are living and she has this moment where she has to almost kind of take a breath and she looks at the hole in her finger and she realizes all right this is a, an awful situation that she's voluntarily gotten herself into but she's gonna have to kind of pull herself up by her bootstraps and build something from scratch, dealing with total, complete cavemen. But that's, for me, one of the most beautiful moments in the movie where you're seeing her totally in profile, looking at that hole in her glove, and then she kind of mans up and she's ready to put on that brave face again. Yeah, yeah. And and, and honestly, in, in many ways, the crux, whole crux of the film, when the two when the two guys, the, the emissaries from the company, you know, decide to leave, you know, one of them talks about like, oh, this meat, was it rancid? I, all I need is some the case of the runs like <laughs> so so you know uh, i mean uh yeah, michael murphy who's another robert altman regular but he's great in this and he had the he had apparently got this great bit of direction from robert altman he said all right well who is this character that i'm playing like what, what's his motivation and robert robert altman just said oh you know he's someone's nephew and that yeah, was like, it yeah. perfectly summed up who this guy is. This is a guy who, through nepotism and connections, he's finding himself in this position where he's been sent up into the mountains to try and buy off this piece of property. And whether he succeeds or fails doesn't really matter because the company knows what they're going to do in the end. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, uh, you know, in, a, in you know, sort of in a way, McCabe's whole life sort of rests on, you know, them not wanting to be there and having the run. So yeah. <laughs> a case, case of diarrhea might have... Uh, actually yeah, one guy can't kid. drink anymore because his stomach won't allow it, and the other guy's worried about getting getting like <laughs> shitting himself. And so, yeah, but yeah, I mean, this whole this whole movie makes you feel like you're gonna shit yourself, <laughs> you know, the crap they're eating and the stuff they're drinking, and like, you know, what like talking about the camp being clapped out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's sexually transmitted disease and intestinal issues are definitely at the forefront of this film. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, so in the book, the cowboy, you know, character does come to town and it plays out like, is he a gunfighter and and everything and um and and McCabe is established as a gunfighter very early on like he doesn't when when Sheehan based when Sheehan is like oh you're Pudgy McCabe you killed Bill Roundtree he confirms that he did that um and actually throughout the book he does these shooting displays for the town and the town is established as having a, a, a more diverse group of people living there. There's families, there's children. The boys watch McCabe shooting, shooting cans all the time because McCabe is trying to keep up this reputation as, uh, uh, you know, as this gunfighter slash businessman. And uh, he doesn't have the, uh, the gun that he has in the movie, which is an Austrian gun that actually is probably from like uh, 10 years after the movie takes place, but whatever. It's called a gasser. 
which is a funny name for a gun. But uh, in the book, he has a Colt with a with a the trigger taken off. He has it rigged to where when he just pulls back the hammer, it goes down. So that's how he pulls the trigger is just you know fanning the hammer back on it on his uh, on his pistol. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a line in the script that talk about how he shaved the trigger down to nothing. Yes, yeah, and the script kind of retains that, but then that specialized gun becomes this uh, unique weird Austrian gun. So yeah, the cowboy comes, uh, then the killers come and, uh, they meet McCabe in his bar and he actually holds them off with a shotgun and they have banter and McCabe is, seems way more in control in the book and in these parts. Um, and even in the script too, it's much the same in the script. Uh, it's almost taken verbatim from the book, but he doesn't get a shotgun <laughs> taken from him by a crazy preacher. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what happens with the shotgun in a, in a, in a minute. It's probably better that they changed it. But, um, in the book, he, um, uh, Butler actually does know Bill Roundtree. Um, he is, you know, he basically says Bill, you know, the whole thing of Bill Roundtree was, a friend of mine or whatever. Like my best friend's uh, best friend or whatever that line is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, in the movie it's, you know, it's established. He's lying in the script. McCabe is the one that basically says, you never knew Bill Roundtree. He was a piece of shit. Yeah. I know you didn't know him. And Butler kind of goes, okay, you're right. You know, so they don't ever kill the cowboy. Um, the kid is like really primed to, to, to start shooting up the town and Butler is always keeping him in line. So anyway, they, they have their big, you know, uh, gunfight or whatever. He shoots the kid in the back and stuff like things that were not standard for a Western, even even a novel in the, you know, in the late 50s. It's not something that you'd see. Uh, it's not it's not snowy. It's muddy and rainy and stuff in the book. Well, the snow and, just fell uh, in their laps. I mean, those one of the things where they were shooting the movie sequentially and they got to the point where suddenly like 10 feet of snow just landed on the set. And like, all right, well. We can't shoot anything else anyway, so we, we can either wait for the snow to melt or we can try and finish the remaining scenes while it's snowing. And it just so happened to work. It's one of those beautiful, miraculous, like multi-million dollar accidents that just fell right in, right on the uh, right on the set. And you, you yeah. can't plan for that, but you just kind of have to wing it. And it was, I think it was a masterstroke that decided to work with it as opposed to wait. Yeah, that's one of the things – that's one of the only things in the film that was shot out of sequence because they knew that the snow was going to be going away – uh, and the whole point of the scene is that the snow is building up, so they they actually shot that sequence backwards. Yeah, uh, so like it doesn't work to have Warren Beatty dying in the snows is blowing over him if the snow is melted by the point. So you got to go ahead and get those shots quickly, and then you can get your shots of like putting out the like the church and that sort of thing like, at the appropriate time. But yeah, I know that um, Warren Beatty kind of resisted shooting the the snow scene, and he was like, "Whoa, we're gonna get into like serious continuity trouble if all this suddenly melts." And they kept calling the local airport trying to figure out like how long's the weather gonna last, how long's the temperature gonna last, and just by some miracle, they even I think they only had to do a few fake shots of snowflakes falling in front of the camera, and you can kind of tell what's the real snow versus the fake snow, but it looks yeah. just gorgeous. Yeah, it is a gorgeous sequence. That is. The fake snow is one of the knocks against the movie. I mean, it it's one of my very favorite westerns. Probably my second favorite western of the '70s, um, and and probably in my top five westerns. But that is that is one of the flaws is that fake snow is uh, so like in many ways egregious, like so obvious, and also like if if they'd maybe like optically printed it a little less, where you just kind of very saw it like. Maybe it's more translucent or yeah, something. They, they, they overdid it. It's it's too front and center. Yeah, and it's also like they don't like 
they'll do reverse shots to where like McCabe is looking at something like, so you're seeing McCabe, then you're seeing what he's seeing. And the snow is going in the same direction <laughs> when it cuts both ways. Like, <laughs> like what? And then the shots where like the snow seems to be coming like from under an awning and you're like, how is the snow doing that? Or it seems like it's coming out of a building. Like how, how this building is clearly blocking the way the, the wind uh, of blowing the snow that way. So how is this, you know, so there, there's some things where, like, man, maybe had they paid attention to the angles more when they were printing it, they could print the snow. Well, the I'm just amazed way. it came up as well as it did because Robert Altman is a very laid-back, casual, kind of undisciplined filmmaker who would kind of wing it in a lot of ways, and continuity was not his strong suit. So I think if we can like count our blessings that it can that it comes together as well as it as well as it. He just was had a very loose, relaxed directing style and that was just the, the way he is and it'd say a lot of how the character of McCabe came to be I think the reason it marked such a departure from both the book as well as the script is that they kept informing the character with a lot of Robert Altman's characteristics yeah yeah it seems like as they went on and uh, they they took what was there already and really like pushed it to where like you know what if what if he is not only a little bit less competent than your average Western hero? What if he's like really, in many ways, incompetent? So like that when he, he acts- mutters to himself like an, like a lunatic, which kind of st- he stops doing like pretty early yeah. on. But I like the muttering, and it makes his soliloquy later in the movie make more sense because we've already established oh, this is a guy who will argue with himself a mile a minute. I have I had a friend who will go unnamed because well, <laughs> he used to thing in college where he was hammered and he would have these arguments with himself that were some of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. We'd be like, well, maybe I should uh, do my homework tonight, but fuck it. I'm not in the mood to do my homework tonight, but you know, I'm kind of failing that class, but God damn it, I've earned the right to have it. And he would just, he would go back and forth and it was just delicious stuff to behold. So whenever I see McCabe muttering to himself, I'm reminded of my very dear friend. Oh yeah. And, th- and that was a device that Altman used uh, to be able to get a lot of the things that like the interior monologue that is from the book. So that stuff is directly from the book. Yeah. I got poetry in me poetry in me freezing my soul um a lot of the things that he says are um straight out of the book but a lot of times it's not actually dialogue it's just things that he's thinking so that was sort of a way that that was a device that altman used in order to get you know these these soliloquies and things uh out you know so that he can you you get a feeling for of his headspace and everything which also uh, led to like the one big creative disagreement between Beatty and altman where altman he and Julie Christie liked to do a handful of takes. Warren Beatty liked to do a lot of takes. And Warren Beatty would keep getting better and better and better. And Julie Christie would kind of cool off and stagnate. And so for that I Got Poetry in Me sequence, Robert Altman went home. And Beatty, I think, shot the scene like seven more times. And they ended up using take three or take five or whatever the case was. like they, Something they'd already shot earlier. But Beatty was one of those guys where he just really loved doing it over and over and over again. And Robert Altman is just one of those guys, he doesn't like a lot of rehearsal. He likes to keep things fresh. He likes to keep things spontaneous. And then he likes to move on. But, you know, it's like, I think both Beatty and Altman put their best foot forward, even if their approaches to filmmaking are very different. Yeah, like, I think Julie Christie said that there, it was kind of a necessary uh, push and pull between the two of them is that, you know, like, uh, Altman made Beatty looser and, and Beatty sort of reined Altman in, um, in, in many ways, yeah, so that he didn't get yeah. too indulgent. T- tighten it up. You, it still has this. It still 
as loose as it is, it tightens as it goes. And it is still a very, you know, it's very coherent uh, thematically and in the story and, and, and everything. So, um, you know, that, that, you know, that, that's a good thing. And so, it, so in the script, like McCabe kills the guys. He doesn't have, he doesn't do the Derringer trick, even though it's mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the book, uh, he has this, just an extra gun and he's down in a ditch. And instead of it being a surprise that McCabe is like still alive, which the movie uses it, Basically, McCabe is there, and it's his interior, like thought process of Butler approaching him and what he's going to do, and the suspense of that. And so then he, he kills Butler. The preacher never gets killed. The church doesn't burn down. I mean, that preacher death. We could have almost included that scene in the Peckinpah knockoffs episode because it feels <laughs> like a very Pe- Peckinpah inspired moment. Oh, definitely. There are there are a few of those, and I think that comes probably from Lou Lombardo. Who will, who will probably get into uh, in a bit, but uh, you know because Lou Lombardo was one of Peck and Paw's. I mean, he worked with Altman before he worked with Peck and Paw in in television, but he was one of the editors, the main editor on the Wild Bunch, um, and he was the editor of this film, and he also uh, shot some of the second unit scenes of the um, of the end uh, end gunfight. So I wouldn't be surprised if I found out that that was actually shot by uh, Lou Lombardo, the <laughs> slow motion arm getting blown off. Um, so then after McCabe kills Butler, Mrs. Miller, who's drunk, she runs out. And, and in, in the book and in the script, it's a little bit more underlined that she is actually in love with McCabe. Um, in the movie, you're never fully, you don't ever fully know exactly where she's at. There's hints of it, but uh, it doesn't really um, tell you. So she she runs out. McCabe is dying. It's it's really one of the only scenes where the book becomes sort of a standard, uh, sort of western, very much like uh, you know El Paso, the song El Paso, like the dying and the ladies holding you as you're dying, and and she's crying and stuff and and all that. Um, actually, uh, that, that was what I was going to mention in the book. Um, the night before, you know, McCabe spills out his like feelings for her and everything. He could never tell her he loved her because she was a whore. So that's his issue in the book. He can't, you know, he can't admit that he's in love with this whore. Uh, she's upset. He, cause he, he's always, he was always making himself out like a big gunfighter. And now, you know, these guys are coming to kill him and no one is going to help him. And he's basically signed his own death warrant. And, uh, so he has this shotgun who he ran, he ran the killers off with and, when he wakes up after sleeping with Mrs. Miller that night before the gunfight, uh, the shotgun is gone. She's locked it up in a trunk. So, <laughs> so that's why he doesn't have his shotgun instead of the preacher taking it. That's one of the things that's probably best that it was changed just because you, you see that in a movie, you'd probably hate Mrs. Miller. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's never a moment in the shot- movie where the audience feels anything but complete, total love and admiration for Mrs. Miller. I mean, you could maybe be frustrated with her for being totally zonked out on, <laughs> on opium yeah. and that sort of thing. But on the whole, she's she's tough not to fall in love with. Hey, John McCabe. Yeah. Mrs. Miller, come from Bearport to see you. Is this your place? Saloon, eh? Well, it's gonna be saloon and gambling now. Did you say you come up here from Bearpaw to see me? (laughs) 
there something I can do for you? Do you have anything to eat? I'm bloody starving. Took six hours to get up here in that flipping contraption. Uh, well, you have to forgive me. My kitchen ain't in operation yet, but uh, I, I could take you up to the restaurant up there if you're hungry enough. I'm hungry enough. I could eat a bloody horse. Well, Sheehan's place, you probably will. Now the frontier wit, I see. Yes, and that is one of the great ironies in the movie is the fact that, you know, McCabe is a small timer and she comes in and tells him how to run his business. His business grows. The town grows around his business. He becomes the leading citizen in town. Um, and that is essentially kind of what signs his death warrant. Had he stayed a small timer? He would have been fine. Uh, he would have been under the radar. Quick question, yes. just total theory because there's no evidence to support this one way or another, but – if at the end of the movie, I mean, one of my favorite moments of the movie is McCabe dying in the snow, but if Mrs. Miller had walked out and dragged him inside and nursed him back to health and they lived happily ever after, would this film have been a monster runaway commercial success as opposed to a movie that just kind of died? Uh, I don't know if it would have been a success. I think it would have um, maybe done a little bit better, but I think the elements that people usually complain about uh, in the film are there right from the beginning. So maybe if it ended on a high note, uh, people would have liked it better. But I think the things that people complain about, which I've never, even in my days renting it on VHS, I've, I've never had a problem with the audio. Nor even people it. that into the movie oftentimes complain that the audio is I not I saw a really good. crummy print when I was an undergrad. For whatever reason, we had this really crappy kind of local movie theater on the campus in college that would have had these little film festivals. And they brought in a print of this movie that you – basically couldn't even see the image and if you're watching a movie shot by Vilmos Zsigmond that's a, a crying shame but it was just a rotten print so you can neither see nor hear anything but that was the fault of the print not the movie I've never had any problem whatsoever following the overlapping dialogue in this I love overlapping dialogue whether you're talking about how Howard Hawks does it or how Orson Welles does it overlapping dialogue is killer because you don't need to understand every single word like when I'm doing the podcast sometimes I'll kind of start talking before somebody else is finished and they'll do the same and you just need the the meat in the middle and you're good to go so yeah i i find the uh the, the approach to the audio in this film totally fine i think there are a couple of rotten prints that went out early on for some of the press screenings which resulted in some of the bad reviews but you know rex reed i, I fucking can't stand rex reed he's a, he's a horrible film critic and i love the fact that pauline kale went on um with a fucking talk show uh yeah. Yeah, Dick Cavett to defend the. I mean, I've got a lot of problems with Pauline Kael for the way she would try to take down people like Orson Welles, but the way she defended this film on Dick Cavett's show, uh, she definitely earned a lot of credit in the bank with me. Oh yeah, and I and I know that Ebert too was a an early defender uh, of the movie. Yeah, that so that 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 stuff's never been an issue. But I think just the whole feeling of it, um, you know, and obviously that would have been a big compromise. Uh, it, in the book, McCabe does end up dying. Uh, he gives her the money to go to San Francisco, and then we get this scene where, like, Sheehan is coming to check who has won. Because in the book and in the script, um, McCabe makes this bet with the killers and with Sheehan. Uh, he bets on himself that he's going to kill these guys, and that's why the script tentatively was titled The Presbyterian Church Wager for a long time. Um, and then eventually that sort of, like, ironic fatalism – Got, I think Altman realized like well, we don't need that. We don't need that in the script. We don't. We don't need that in the film. 
uh, it's a little bit in a way too, I don't know, too mannered or too, too underlined. It, it, it could, there's, there's, there's like a dark, maybe there's a dark comedy, ironic, dark comedy, uh, version of this film, um, that would be able to sustain that and sustain like the lawyer telling him that he's going to die and all these sort of things. Uh, but the film that he ended up making is so uh, naturalistic in so many ways that it, it at that point, I think Altman realized it wasn't necessary. But anyway, so the money from the bet, uh, McCabe gives it to to Mrs. Miller to go to San Francisco like she wants. Sheehan comes out to check who has won. Um, and then Mrs. Miller grabs the shotgun and is ready to kill Sheehan. And that's where it ends. And it ends with the cowboy, like it started, trying to play golden slippers on his banjo. So the ending, yeah, the, so the ending of the book is, uh, that's where, one of the biggest diversions from the actual film. And so, you know, uh, when Ben Maddow uh, took a crack at the script, the like I mentioned before, the writer of Asphalt Jungle, amongst other things, he really took out so many things that were unique about it. I've never read his script. I've read summaries of it. I, I'm, I haven't gone to like the Margaret Herrick library to, <laughs> to look at his, his two drafts. What he does is he he really um, he starts you know um, changing the character of McCabe to where he's way more competent. Um, the character of Butler uh, has history with him, and it's actually Butler's idea um, to move. Telling the he tells the mining company to move on um, the town of Presbyterian Church, so it's his idea. You know, he's supposedly run McCabe out of every town and all this other stuff. So there's past history there. Then he did another draft where, like, uh, Butler's men rob uh, McCabe at a gambling parlor. And then McCabe is able to rob his money back, but he doesn't have a rifle. He has a stick, but they don't ever look at it. And then McCabe cuts off a piece of his scalp, Butler's scalp, and keeps it. Like, totally weird stuff, but... Um, also the character of Mrs. Miller is compromised in the, in the, uh, Maddow script. Like, uh, in, in his script, McCabe is the one that has the idea that she run the brothel and she immediately falls in love with him and all that stuff. And so, uh, also in his script at the end, after McCabe defeats everyone, Sheehan is, runs out and actually kills McCabe. And then it's sort of, uh, you know, after he's done that. He hires Mrs. Miller um, for her services, and she goes up to – oh, actually, she has him go up to her room, and uh, she has a shotgun waiting, and then you hear a gunshot, and then she leaves to go off to San Francisco. So <laughs> <coughs> that was the Mad Al version. So by the time it gets to Robert Altman, uh, Brian McKay had actually done a rewrite. Now, Brian McKay is an interesting character. He was in prison, actually, for stealing money orders when he came in contact with Robert Altman. It's actually Altman's wife uh, at the time was, I guess, like a, some like a prison correspondence or something with him. And uh, so then Altman himself started talking to McKay. So then they started collaborating on on things once McKay got out of prison. And so McKay did almost a page one rewrite of. Uh, Maddow's script. He kept some of the description. Um, he kept the he kept Maddow's ending of um, Sheehan killing McCabe, 
and he kept uh, Sheehan a scene where Sheehan takes McCabe's body and like he shaves him and uh, takes a photo with the corpse and displays him in his saloon and then takes him to an ice house and you get the feeling that he's going to uh, parade. Yeah, McCabe's he's going to make money off the corpse for a while. Yeah. So he kept those things from the Madhouse script, but basically everything else he he threw out and uh, went went back to the book. Uh, everyone claimed it was like a, just an excellent script, and his his first draft uh, is not available anywhere that I've seen um, before um, Altman started collaborating on it with him. Uh, supposedly they had a following out him and Altman. And uh, they, they had a falling out. Uh, I've heard different things over like Brewster McCloud. He didn't go to some premiere or screening or some kind of thing. I've also heard they had a falling out over an unmade film called Death, Where is Thy Stingling? So uh, at one point, supposedly Altman was going to try to get his name taken off of the script. So that's what I've read. One of the producers, um, what is his name? Lido something... Maybe George Lido, he claims that the McKay script was better than what ended up in the film and that Altman was changing things and cutting things as punishment to McKay. Gotcha. Um, I Whereas don't... Altman would probably just say, well, a screenplay is a blueprint. It's a jumping off point, but it's never like, – he likes to approach films in a more painterly fashion, and he's not really that preoccupied with being like a strict adherence to the written word. Uh, yeah, I mean the thing is I don't buy that. I, 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 I honestly don't think – I mean the script is very interesting. It's a good script. Uh, it, it has the Altman rewrite, so I don't know what his version was, but – from the various drafts that that I've read from the book to the you know, it's it, it does it just doesn't feel correct to me. I honestly wonder uh, that quote when it was actually um, said. It might have been before McCabe and Mrs. Miller had a second life in a way. Um, so it might have there might have still been sort of this cloud of like hanging over it of it being a failure and uh you know all that so that that might have been part of it uh but to me i don't i don't see a scenario where the script was better than what we end up and end up with in the final film so uh you know so so robert altman rewrites it and everything and you know that this the script has um like i said the script is closer to the book in terms of like mccabe is more much more competent the script opens with a preamble where we see the town in like modern day, like and how it's dead and everything. So modern day, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, you see, like uh, there's one wall still standing, but otherwise time has moved on. Yeah, and then it jumps back in in time. It specifies that it's the 1890s and and all that. That obviously got they got rid of that later on. A movie, and we'll probably talk about the movies that this is influenced. But like First Cow. Um, cl- I, I think clearly is uh, influenced by this film, and uh, it opens with like modern day and then jumping back in time. So I don't know if uh, Kelly Reichart or whatever her name is had read the this draft of the script or something, or if they just kind of came upon the same idea. Um, but that's sort of an interesting thing. And then the script just kind of goes in. It's like there's just numerous pages describing the town, like specifying that there's going to be a bunch of uh, ad libs and stuff. Um, McCabe confirms that he killed Bill Roundtree, but then a minute later says he never killed no man. So there's that ambiguity there. 
that I think is even more, you know, pronounced in in the film. McCabe is just more competent. He he he's he his banter with Mrs. Miller is maybe is a little bit more like witty. He's he's sharper with his comebacks. He's not as flummoxed as he is in the film. You know, he calls her madam and she says, "Don't give me that madam shit." And he says, "You know, I I thought you'd appreciate the promotion." It's a it's a pretty good like you know, uh, dialogue. But I think uh, what they went with just just feels better, you know. But uh, you know, the, the Chinese kind of have more uh, uh, more of a role. Uh, like in the book, he he becomes like a opium dealer for the Chinese. Um, he becomes kind of an intermediary between you know the Taz people and the Chinese. Um, the racism against the Chinese, which is in the film, but it's more pronounced in in the book, like in the bathhouse it says no chinese allowed you know and uh yeah like in the script it says like like no chinese or no animals and things like putting them on the same level yeah yeah and uh and uh the when the when the chinese uh prostitute comes to town she's talking about how she's not going to sleep with any chinaman or whatever and that's actually in the movie but it's like one of those pieces of dialogue that you don't really you know hear um, yeah, the only real dialogue you hear about the Chinese is when the guys around the table are debating whether or not the a Chinese girl is uh, anatomically different downstairs from uh, the girls that they are accustomed to. Oh, yeah. And then Sheehan says, you know, Beatty, uh, McCabe asks him, like, are there any around? He says, turn over a rock. You kind of hear the disdain there. And then, of course, Butler goes into his whole spiel about how you send a China man in with some dynamite and blow him up and it's a $50 fine or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, it's worth it. Um, so, um, so the, that's, those are things that, uh, the, the racism of the town, I think is, uh, it still ends up in the film, but it's portrayed in a somewhat more of a subtle way. Yeah. It's not front and center. This is not a movie about racism. This is a movie about small businessman versus a big businessman. And this love story that never quite really gets off the ground, but does provide some moments of comfort and companionship for these two people as they're before their lives are thrown in different directions. So yeah, the racism's around and the fact that you have like a character named breed who's a half breed and things like that. But um, yeah, it's not that the, principal focus of the movie by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the movie's called McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's about the, about the two of them. Yeah, definitely. But there, there are still nods to it, which I appreciate. So like you have this black couple, they come into town and they're, and they're clearly the most, you know, the most like uh, dignified, well-dressed, well-spoken people in the town outside of maybe McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. And you see Mrs. Miller showing tons of respect to them when they first arrive and he's introducing himself as a barber and things like that. And that's really the only scene where they have a decent amount of dialogue, but they are incredibly well-dressed and very well, like obviously well-educated, well-mannered, et cetera. Like they're uh, compared to the rest of these guys who look like they probably just shit in their pants and don't even bother to go to the outhouse <laughs> there's some rough people in this town yeah well one of the interesting things that you almost miss maybe if you don't if you're not paying attention or until you maybe see the movie multiple times is that when at the end they all the town puts out the fire they help yeah um but then as the town is celebrating they go off on their own they, they're not part of this they're still not part of that society they're still not part of the celebration they help but they are not, they can't partake in the actual, like, you know, festivities. So that's an interesting thing that it's just one shot, but he's shows you like, you know, he's shows you that he's aware, you know, of the racism. It's not, it's not, um, an unforgiven sort of thing where it's just sort of uh, post racial, uh, enlightened Western society. So, uh, I, I appreciate that. The script also makes 
like McCabe sound even more ruthless in a way that I think got softened in the movie in terms of just the the ruthlessness of just being a pimp. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's softened because it, it, anytime he tries to act tough, you can tell it's a front. Like when he's saying, like, as I recall, I'm paying you boys 15 cents an hour after you've been in those goddamn mines all day. So you have something to do at night besides go home and play with Mary Five Fingers. Like he's talking tough to put a, like a brave front. But behind closed doors, we see that. He struggles to keep the books, and he doesn't know, like, you know, what, what, what's, like, 14 from 23, and he's, like, he's just kind of like, what? And like, we see how behind closed doors he definitely um, is either confused or he's kind of a bumbling idiot. Like, there's one of my favorite moments of the movie is when he's pushing on the door, trying to talk to Mrs. Miller. He's like, if you think I'm going to have this conversation through this closed door, uh, he kind of <laughs> pushes and pushes, and he's not strong enough to push it in. He goes, and that's just fine with me, and he walks off. So yes. it's where all the, all the best comedy comes from. So he's always trying to talk to but Mrs. Miller obviously sees right through it. Yeah, well, one of the things is that when he is negotiating uh, with a bear paw pimp, he says, like, you know, like, this is too much. I can get a horse for this much, da-da-da-da. You kind of you get the idea, like, this is just, like, it's no different than buying a horse, like, you know. And he says, like, and th- this Indian that you're selling me isn't probably isn't going to survive the winter. It's like, uh, whoa, that's <laughs> that's bleak. That's harsh, you know. Um, it really kind of establishes him as uh, more ruthless. And I think uh, if you could cr- criticize one thing about the film's portrayal of the West, I think it like it really gives you a real rosy idea of like whorehouse life. The whores are pretty much always kind of having a good time and having the community and stuff. Yeah, I mean, and it's I think gross that's- at first, but once Mrs. Miller creates it, it's the one place with color and music and laughter. And the, the entire town is just mud and filth and just, it's disgusting. But when you're there, it's people dancing and like looking through keyholes and laughing or hopping in the bathtubs together. And it just, it's very idyllic. And obviously like when Keith Carradine comes to down, he just lives there for a couple of days because he wants to have sex with all of them. And I mean, I guess one could infer from the depiction of the whorehouse, Robert Altman's attitude <laughs> towards, uh, towards working girls. But obviously, Mrs. Miller turns it into this thriving thing. And I love how, like, when the guys first walk in, they see her there, like, when they hear that she costs $5, and they're like, is that true, Mrs. Miller? And she turns around, she's like, that's right. And she says it with so much confidence, and it just implies this girl knows everything there is to know about sex and that she's like, she is the queen of the mountain when it comes to what kind of sexual experiences you can have in this territory. So I I love the way that world is depicted, but obviously it's doing, presenting a very idealized version in comparison to the rest of the town. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's like, um, it's, it's one, I mean, I I understand it narratively why he doesn't necessarily get into all that and the points he's making, but it's, it's in a, in a similar way of like, uh, you know, Peck and Paul's portrayal of like uh, idyllic Mexico in the Wild Bunch. It's necessary yeah. for the narrative. But uh, in terms of like being true, I think that that's one of the yeah. things. I mean, the life expectancy of a hooker in the Wild West was very, it was very short and it was a yeah. life full of brutality and disease and if they had depicted Mrs. Miller's whorehouse in that in that fashion of the film, it would have been an even bigger box office disaster than it was. Yes, <laughs> that, that is true. That's true. And and so in the script, like like the book, um, you know, there's more families and children and and stuff. Uh, McCabe, there's there's a big celebration uh, where they've they uh, they have these festivities, a wrestling match, a tug of war, and stuff, which is in the book and in the script. Um, when McCabe like opens up his his whorehouse 
Uh, and the book specifies that it takes place over four years. In the movie, you don't really get an idea of the time span. Well, you get the sense of the passage of time because this thing does a brilliant job where the first time McCabe rolls into town, you're hearing some of the, 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 the stunning uh, Leonard Cohen music. I think you're hearing uh, Sisters of Mercy, and you're, you're seeing the church steeple going up, the sun setting in the background. It's probably the most beautiful moment in the movie, one of the most beautiful moments in the history of weddings, I mean, in the history of weddings, westerns, and the camera pulls back, and you're seeing the town. It's just like, it's like a skeleton. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. Come on. Sit. And they brought me their comfort and Morning, later Mama, they brought me this song. Oh, I hope you run into them, you who've been traveling so long. Yeah, I like you more. Every time, do you? Listen, you act like you've got, you don't feel anything. Yes, you who must leave everything that you cannot control. It begins with your family, but soon it comes round. Where's Berg? Hey, where's Berg? But I loved it how for the crew, they basically dressed up the crew as if they lived in that town so they could continue building sets while they were filming. Of course, they'd have to stop hammering when like the cameras were rolling. But I've, it's hard to think of other examples where the behind the scenes is part of what appears on the screen as well. And I think it's just a brilliant job of being an economical storyteller. It's like, well, if you've got all these construction workers working anyway, make them part of the story. And so you get the, the sense of the passage of time as more and more buildings appear and more and more buildings start getting fleshed out. But they never really tell you whether it's been four years, four months, whatever the case might be. You're just aware of the fact that their business now is thriving, whereas initially it was not. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the great elements about the movie. I guess they started with modern tools and then they eventually said no let's start let's build this they got behind schedule because they were like let's build it with actual the actual tools of the era you know and, and all that uh but we'll get into that we'll get yeah, and that's leon. all the work of um who was leon the uh yeah leon erickson who yeah. robert Altman says is the most brilliant production designer I've ever worked with and i think he also played the crazy preacher he gets his arm blown off but he had this idea of making the sets and their construction part of the movie and it's just an absolute masterstroke and i can't think of him i can't think of a time he's where not, uh, i'm sorry he's not the preacher he doesn't play the preacher oh, he, doesn't he might have a small well, no, who, who, a does he, who does he play in the movie I, I know he's got a small part i think he i don't re, i don't remember i don't remember now maybe one of the miners or one of the townspeople i don't i don't gotcha. remember but so they got an actual actor for the preacher yeah and I, apparently that actor like was method and actually <laughs> never talked to anyone and everything yeah the church that nobody goes to the entire movie until uh it's time to put out the fire at the end (laughs) nobody cares about the church until it's on fire yeah that when mccabe looks inside there's nothing there's nothing there yeah it's Uh, it's not like it's not like it's got like pews for people to sit in it just looks almost uh, like a like a warehouse inside yeah and that's all i mean that's all kind of from the book i mean the 
the church isn't still being built, but it is in the book. Like he just kind of has it to himself and like um, maybe some Indians come to listen to him talk. But the steeple and, going up, that's one of the great shots of the 1970s and definitely one of the great shots in the history of, of, uh, of the Western genre. And even if it's not of a huge importance to the characters on a spiritual level, goddamn, I mean, Vilmos Yigman shot it in the most beautiful way possible. Yeah, and I guess Altman uh, wanted the real actor to go up and do it and he wouldn't do it. And so he got on Altman's bad side. I guess Altman was mad. Now, and I maybe never casted him again or what because he had to use a stand-in stunt guy to, to even go. those in silhouette like who gives a shit yeah exactly but uh there so there there are the other differences so like uh in in the scripts like ida's you know ida the mail order bride her husband it doesn't get killed in like a drunken street fight he gets uh killed by a saw blade when he's cutting lumber or something gotcha. um, yeah so I, I love that little subplot shelly duvall Goes from mail order bride to prostitute, like in no time flat. But Shelley Duvall, she made seven movies with Robert Altman. I mean, fucking Popeye, which I grew up on, Nashville, Three Women, Brewster McLeod, These Like Us, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Buffalo Bill and the Indians. Obviously, everyone thinks of The Shining when they think of Shelley Duvall, but she has a very, very small little part in this. But it's it's a great. It's one of those. It's one of the one of the many little mini mini narratives within the overall kind of tapestry of story. Oh, and and what's great about it is that is that is the way that. Altman is able to he dials down the directness of the irony but he finds it organically in the film so by changing it to she's a mail order bride so in a way she's already kind of a prostitute and then she you know is married to this guy and a guy goes up to her and is like you know uh, are you are you working at Mrs. Miller's and and the guy gets mad which is funny because she's not far removed from the ladies working at Mrs. Miller's, number one. Number two, the, the ladies at Mrs. Miller's in the town, at least in the film, seem to be accepted members of society. They're singing at funerals and stuff. Like, they're not, like, they're not shunned, uh, like, in a lot of other Westerns. If anything, even, they're upstanding citizens <laughs> compared to some of these yeah. guys. So, uh, but what's funny is, like, this sort of, uh, this, this machismo, he has to protect his woman from insult. And it's his dumb kind of code to put this guy in his place for even suggesting she might be uh, having sex for money. And it ends up getting him killed and it, it's completely pointless. And it's sort of a microcosm of like the movie, the movie, whole movie's point is like this like masculine sort of code of the West or just a masculine code in general, uh, McCabe's code of, you know, not not looking silly to the people of the town and not backing down and all this other stuff is, you know, this this ego, this masculine masculine ego is one of the things that get gets him killed, and so uh, yeah, and, death and then what feels ends up happening so is pointless throughout so much of the movie. I mean, obviously, with the Keith Carradine character getting killed, it's like a scene of complete and total random, needless belligerence that wouldn't have even happened if he didn't just happen to be trying to cross a bridge and it's like that's all it's it's one of the most futile deaths but it's also one of the most beautiful deaths i feel like it's worthy of sam peckinpah the way he gets taken out but it's like oh my god like all he did was try to cross the bridge and say hey like slow your target practice so i don't get shot and this guy decides to use him as target practice but it's a a bone chilling scene and i think it's it's one of the, the high points of the film also when you realize that it was Utterly fucking pointless. It wouldn't have even happened except for just by cosmic chance. Yeah. I want to talk about that in more depth, but I just want to finish this thought real quick is 
the 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 action of defending uh, his wife of being accused of working at Mrs. Miller's gets him killed and gets her winding up working at Mrs. Miller's. <laughs> so so him defending his wife as not a whore turns her into a whore. Yeah, and then gets her. Uh, turned into a whore, which is a thing that you probably will not like put together necessarily. You just kind of, it's just logical. She doesn't have anything to do now or whatever, but it's like, there's that irony there. That's just perfectly dialed down. And it is one of those things that when you watch the film, these like subtle little narratives, subtle ironies come out and uh, you just start to, you know, it just becomes all of the fabric of the piece. It's always, it's always, uh, reinforcing these things without doing it in a way that's obvious. And there's very few movies and especially very few Westerns that are able to do that in such a subtle way. Yeah, this know? movie doesn't make an overt act of spelling out anything. It just allows you to kind of form your, almost like form your own narratives because it has so many different strands that you can kind of hook into. And it's just, it's one of the most laid back Westerns ever made. But that's probably what part of the fun of revisiting is that it just has so much depth and detail and you just keep discovering. In preparation for this episode, I watched it through with the commentary and I was like, fuck it. I'm watching it again just without the commentary and watching it like basically making a double feature out of it. Oh, it's one that I can watch anytime. It's one of the Westerns that I just, you know, uh, I, I, I don't really ever tire of it. But also like. So like so like even like the the anti-religion sort of uh, or anti-organized religion at the very least uh, aspect of of the movie it's it's clearly there you know everyone the the town is named after this big structure the probably the first structure there but it's a church that's made only for this one guy and uh, clearly no one ever goes there or has any anything happening there and and um, that's sort of flipping Western tropes on on its head of like. You know, uh, my darling Clementine has the big celebration of the community of the opening of the church and stuff. And this is sort of an inversion of that. And so the guy who really actually the true builder of the town, McCabe, is is there freezing in the snow, dying, you know, from gunshot wounds because no one has helped him. And uh, they're they're going to put out this this fire and and, and also, you know, there it's not it, even then it's not so underlined because even if they let the church burn, you wouldn't want to do that in a town at that point because the whole town would probably just go up in flames. Yep. Uh, that happened all the time. So uh, it's not like they're only like protecting the symbol of the church. There, it actually has a practical function, but it still is like this ironic sort of uh, thing. In the script, it's really more pronounced. There's a scene that I'm glad they deleted. It, uh, at one point, McCabe sees Pastor Elliot. Uh, and he snaps at him like, God is dead, you prick. And it's like, that's so, like, not necessary. It's just too on Anachron the nose, and it's just too obvious yeah. and ham-fisted. It's anachronistic. I don't think, I don't I, I don't feel that McCabe is a guy that's reading Nietzsche, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like in so, Rosemary's I, Baby, yes, you could say that. But um, yeah, that just seems, um, it just, it's too obvious. That's just that's sort of a counterculture. And, and when you read the script, it feels more directly... Uh, like a counterculture Western, like it'd be like um, somebody making a Western today and having a character talk about like toxic masculinity, be like, what? Like, <laughs> sorry, there was, that's, that's there was, not something someone was talking about back then. There's a really bad Western a few years ago. I think it was called the duel maybe. And, uh, there's like a cult leader played by Woody Harrelson and he's talking to this lady and she goes, uh, we're spiritual, not religious. And it's like, 
no one in the West would ever say. Yeah, anything. that's 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 like a modern day the- California bullshit. Which I remember when I yeah. started spending time in California in the late nineties. Like, I'm really spiritual, but I'm not religious. And it's like, yeah, all right, <laughs> can we move on to something more interesting? <laughs> so, but in the script, uh, the the pastor he he does get he does get shot, but he doesn't get his arm blown off. And he doesn't ever talk at all throughout the script. He talks in the book, and then obviously he talks a little bit in the movie. He doesn't say anything in the script until he gets shot. And then after he gets shot, he's like laying down, and he's saying, fucking son of a bitch, over and over again. Which I'm glad that they cut, because that just seems silly. Like, oh, this pious you know, pastor guy got shot. Now he's just cursing. Like his last words are just fucking son of a bitch over and over again. It, it, uh, it kind of plays out the same, uh, as the film. Um, he kills the three guys, but Sheehan ends up killing him. And then we cut to Mrs. Miller and her opium haze. And so that's an, that is an invention of, um, uh, McKay, um, or McKay and Altman. And um, there are interesting things that actually end up in the film. The way they subtly – now, in the script, when it's revealed that when McCabe talks about how he supplies opium to the Chinese, Mrs. Miller is, like, disdainful of that. She's like, what a business. Like, that's horrible. Uh, and then you realize that she's actually doing opium herself. And I love the way that the movie kind of parcels out the information because you see her just reading a book real giddy. And she's been kind of a tough broad. Yeah, and the door is locked, but you don't learn until it's like 20 more minutes what her nighttime ritual is. Yeah, you start to see her at the birthday party and how she's not enjoying herself, you know, how she's kind of taking care of things, but she has this sort of – feels a little bit miserable. And then you realize, oh, yeah, she's she's uh, she's doing opium. And that was a very – that was common. They probably wouldn't be smoking it in a room like that. They'd probably just be taking laudanum, uh, your average prostitute. But – but that is a uh, that is an interesting aspect. Uh, bringing I mean, that. most beautiful shot of the movie, arguably, is that close up of her at the end. Is I mean, she's lying sideways and is zooming in on her eye, and you're hearing the Leonard Cohen score. But it's basically her in a, you know, a a, a, a daze from the drug. But it's one of the most stunningly beautiful shots uh, of Robert Altman's career. And it's a perfect way to end the movie, and then how it kind of goes into this really strange close up of whatever that little object it's was. It's a that little was, ceramic that yeah. holds. And like Holden Robert Altman in the commentary is like, and now we're like looking at another planet. He has some real kind of offhand comment about how it zooms in. But <laughs> yeah. after seeing McCabe die in the snow and then cutting back and forth to this, these stunningly beautiful shots of her just getting wasted in the, in the opium den. For me, it perfectly sums up the movie. Once again, it's probably why the movie was a failure, but it just, it's so bleak and so beautiful all at once. Yeah, and uh, clearly, I think Leone had seen that because he does something very similar. Oh yeah, once upon a time in America. I mean, he, uh, yeah. I, 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 if you were making westerns and you did not see this movie, then say something was dreadfully wrong. But uh, what what uh, is interesting is there are a couple scenes where she is where we actually see her smoking the opium, and uh, the first time that we actually see her doing it is intercut with McCabe turning down the Harrison Shaughnessy, uh, you know, emissaries that have been sent out. And that's when he's basically signing his death warrant. And, um, and so that's, what's interesting is that when he's actually dying, she's doing that too, because you have these mirrored, uh, scenes and there's a lot of subtle, Subtlety in the way he mirrors scenes. The Keith Carradine getting shot off the bridge. In the script, he gets shot off a horse. But when he gets shot off the bridge and falls into the icy water, 
well then the, when the, the kid who has shot him gets killed by McCabe, he falls into the bathwater yep. and we get very similar shots of them floating. So he mirrors things in ways that you don't necessarily, it, it's not done in a, in a obvious or arch way, but when you see the movie over and over again, you start to see um, where he's, where he's uh, intercutting things or underlining certain, certain aspects. And that scene with the shooting, like I said, we'd get back to it and, uh, very much like it's it's very much a you know Jack Palance, Elisha Cook Jr., Shane sort of scene. Hey, hold it, honey. What? Hold up in your tiger practice a minute. I don't want to get shot. Well, then get off the bridge, you saddle tramp. I want to buy some socks. I got a long ride ahead of me. What's wrong with the socks you got on? I wore them out, running around half naked in that whorehouse over there. That's really quite a place. You been there yet? Take off your boots and show me. Oh, you're joshing me. I said take off your boots and show me, you egg sucker. I ain't gonna do that. What are you wearing that gun for? Nothing, I just wear it. Can't hit nothing with it. Well, that don't make no sense. What kind of a gun is it? Oh. Them's good guns. That's what I got. Must be something wrong with it. Nah, it's me. I just can't shoot good. Well, let me see it. Come on. Maybe I can fix it for you. <laughs> okay. But even in Shane, though, you get the sense of this rising tension between the various factions. And much like the scream earlier when the hooker's trying to stab the guy with the knife, it just comes out of nowhere and, a, and it just... It's all the more horrifying as a result. Plus, Keith Carradine, he was 20. This is his filmmaking debut. He's like this cute little innocent boy. He's totally naive and totally harmless. And all of a sudden, this guy's just like just talking mad shit to him on the bridge. And everybody starts gathering, but nobody's speaking up in his defense. Nobody's saying, hey, everybody, chill out. Everybody's just watching to see what's going to happen. And he just gets murdered outright. Although, obviously, he convinces him to pull the gun out. It's like, oh, well, there must be something wrong with it. Like, hand it over. But it's a bone-chilling scene, and quite literally, because they had to like break up the ice, and they pulled Keith Carradine in, and he had like a like a partial wetsuit on, like over his torso. But he just sat yeah. there in the the ice water, and of course Robert Altman's like waiting and waiting, like can he handle a few more seconds before he finally said cut? But he sits there and soaks in that freezing water for at least a couple seconds. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's 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 yeah, absolutely, absolutely horrifying. But it serves the same function in in the sense that like um, this is where you know like now they've ramped things up. Yeah, this is no turning back. 
They're, they're, no. they're, they're playing for keeps. They're here to kill McCabe. Absolutely. And I, I love also just like the way he's showing off his skill when he's shooting the ice around that, em- that empty, I guess, tub of water. The goal is not to hit it. The goal is to make it float. And it's just some, like, I think he's described as a Dickensian orphan in the, in the commentary. But he's just this yeah. young German kid who doesn't look like he belongs in a Western. He looks like he belongs like as like a street urchin in like a 19th century like movie about poverty in Europe. But somehow he's ended up in the American West just killing people for money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's uh, it, it, like like that. But it does serve the function of showing the townspeople we will kill you. I mean, in the book, it is specified that McCabe has kept a marshal out of the town or a sheriff out of the town. It's his doing. So there's no really no law there. So that also signs his death warrant um, in the book and in in the script. The they. Uh, the killers come in, they start shooting the hats off of people's heads and stuff, the miners' heads and everything to uh, really bully them. They start they start doing target practice all the time so that the, that the townspeople know not to cross them. And um, the kid wanting to, like, strap on a gun and kill McCabe, like, Butler's always kind of keeping him in line. You get the feeling that he beats up the kid um, in not only in the – in the book, but even in the, in, in the script after he kills the cowboy. Now in the book, he doesn't ever kill the cowboy, but in, in the script, I mean, he, when he kills the cowboy, you see that Butler is not in, he doesn't like that. He does that. He beats the kid up. The kid has a black eye later and everything, but in the movie, they kind of just shortcut it. The Butler is there watching too. And it, you know, they don't need to do, uh, they don't need to show like their target practice or their prowess with guns. They just kill this cowboy, and now everyone knows. Okay, we, we will we will kill you too at the drop of a hat. So don't don't even cross us. Yeah. So and they're so badass. Like one of my favorite moments of the movie is that kick-ass zoom of all three of them. It's the morning of the big shootout, and from like a hundred miles away, the camera just goes and zooms in on the three of them, and it's it's such an epic little moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, when they first come into town, you get that guitar. That's I think that's the only thing that. That's the only thing that Leonard Cohen did specifically for the movie is that guitar strumming when they first come into town and the guy's dancing on ice and they're playing their songs and stuff and then they just stop. And it's very much like uh, almost like a Leone moment where they just know like, oh, these are these are the killers, you know. Traveling lady, stay a while until the night is over. I'm just a station on your way. I know I'm not your lover. Well, I live with a child of snow. When I And I fought every man for her until the nights were cold. She used to wear her hair like you, except when she was sleeping. And then she'd weave it on. Gold and breathing 
And why are you so quiet now Standing there in the doorway You chose your journey long Let's talk a little bit just about Leonard Cohen because I know Leonard Cohen initially when he saw the movie didn't like it, which broke Robert Altman's heart. But then later on, he claimed to have seen it with an audience and just fell in love with it. But would this movie work without the um, I mean, w- without the Leonard Cohen score? Because I feel like sometimes like Tarantino's talked about how with like a lot of scores, you're quite literally are trusting the soul of your movie to a musician. And all these songs that come out a couple years prior, like in 1967. But it's almost impossible to imagine. I, I mean, I fell in love with Leonard Cohen's music because of this movie and started buying his albums and that sort of thing. But where, where do you stand on the Leonard Cohen music in terms of um, how essential it is to just the DNA of this film? Uh, I love it. I, I, I love the use of the Leonard Cohen music. I know that Altman didn't really have a plan. He had a guy with, you know, um, uh, you know, a fiddle and a flute and a few other instruments to have sort of diegetic uh music and i guess he was like thinking maybe he was gonna if he had a score he'd base it off of that or he would just score the movie with just diegetic music because it does work Uh, like the zoom in on mccabe and his gold tooth and he gets his poker game started and the mandolin starts playing like that fucking diegetic music kicks ass and totally fits in yeah yeah and it does complement certain things when he gets like kind of shown up and it plucks and everything and and uh, that's also yeah, that gold tooth is great. I mean, like like Warren Beatty, uh, the way he's dressed is he's almost dressed like a late sixties, early seventies pimp, big fur coat, <laughs> you know, derby hat, gold tooth. He's not far removed from uh, uh, you know uh, pimps later on, uh, contemporary pimps at that time. And then I guess Altman had already you know fallen in love with the the Cohen music in the sixties when he was doing um, what was a cold day in the park or is that the title? Um, um, the title of the film is one sec. It was shot. It was it, well. It was shot in in that Vancouver. cold day and, in the park. Yeah, and uh, and he'd he'd fallen in love with it, but sort of, I guess sort of forgot about it. And then later, after they had finished wrapping the shooting of the film, he was at some party and someone put the record on and he was like oh this is yes i remember this this is my film and he thinks maybe the dna of that came into the way he shot the the movie and shot certain scenes i don't uh i don't know but uh he kind of claims that and so um well i do know leonard cohen loved bruce mcleod and as a result he very kindly almost gave away the rights to these three tunes not for free but for very little and gave the movie a piece of the action on the soundtrack. And Robert Altman, yeah. just, he never had a, a composer or a musician be so cooperative and so supportive when it came to negotiating. So it's just one of the things where two artists of similar temperament came together. And I mean, from the moment you hear that music uh, during the opening credits, maybe my favorite opening credits in any movie ever with the, the titles drifting and sideways. Oh, yeah. uh, just it's bone chilling, awe inspiring stuff that makes me just drool when I'm watching it. And so, yeah, I don't know if the movie could live without the Leonard Cohen, but I'm just glad that it it's there because that's how I discovered Leonard Cohen. I guess maybe that's not true. I'd heard him in um, Natural Born Killers. The opening credits to that also has Leonard Cohen, but later music. Yeah, I um, I think the movie would still uh, work without that, but it does 
really elevated and the lyrics are not too um, on the nose but it's it's surprising how well they work in so many uh, aspects it does feel like the songs were written for the movie um so yeah and that's one of the funny things is like you know altman was kind of riding high on mash and when he first talked to Cohen, he was like, you know, uh, Cohen was like, oh, I, I, I saw your movie. I loved it. He was like, MASH? And he's like, oh, I, I didn't really like that one. Yeah. <laughs> but Brewster McCloud, that's the one. And uh, with Brewster McCloud, I know that I think Bob Dylan had that option at one point as possibly a starring role. Bob Dylan was in love with uh, the Brewster McCloud script. So um, and that and the writer of that one was upset with how, what Altman did with it. Uh, I haven't seen it, so. Uh, I'll have to remedy that at some point, but um, yeah, and yeah. So Altman thought they thought it was uh, Warner Brothers was like he's on Columbia. There's no way, and like you said, like uh, Cohen was very generous with uh, you know letting them use the music and yeah, giving them yeah royalties of the sales of the album. That same year, the two of the song, two of the three songs that are in McCabe and Mrs. Miller were used in Fassbender's. Uh, what is it? The, the something, the holy whore. What is that? Oh, like is beware it? the holy whore. Yeah, beware the holy whore. Yeah. So the the same year, uh, two of the songs from this movie were used in the Fastbender well, film. I love how at certain points in the movie you'll hear the music, but it's almost like it's being played on somebody's stereo at the end of like some valley far away, where you'll see, like when Mrs. Miller's first bringing like the first week's take to McCabe to show how successful they've been, and she's just walking through the camp, and you're hearing it. Or one point when uh, McCabe is walking across the bridge and you're seeing like dogs playing on the ice and it's just the the guitar riff from the opening tune, but how it's used as a bridge as people are walking through the community, just trying to get in out of the cold and back in some place where it's warm. But yeah, it's one of those things where just the score and the movie are so interwoven that you can't even possibly imagine them separate. Yeah, and the thing is the score, it doesn't ever really to me come off as like anachronistic or something. Maybe... Mm, I was familiar with Leonard Cohen before seeing the film, but I don't know if I was specifically familiar with these songs. So maybe coming to it from like a perspective of a, of a Cohen fan, I might be like, well, that's taking me out. I don't know. But um, it's not, you know, it's not like it's a rock guitar or anything like it's just an acoustic guitar. And so it has like the it has the contemporary feeling that the movie has, but it also uh, can also work you know, for that era to a, to a certain extent. So it doesn't really pull you out. At least not for me. One of the things that I always talk about, and and if you go on my Twitter and search back, I'll probably repost it when this comes out. Um, is for whatever reason, there's a pattern of like revisionist westerns having soundtracks by uh, these singer songwriter guys or these rock guys or whatever. Yeah, like Bob Dylan and Pat Gray and Billy the Kid and things like that. Almost more than any other genre. I think this one really kind of kicks it off. Before that was. Little Big Man, which had John Hammond doing the soundtrack. So maybe that's the first one, but I think this is the signpost that people point to. And then also, so later you have. It was a kind of a new thing putting rock and roll in movies, period. I mean, obviously, you can go back to like Blackboard Jungle, which I think was the very first one, but starting yeah. with Easy Rider just became the hip, cool thing to do. So whether you're talking The Graduate or whatever, suddenly people wanted to put folk music and rock and roll music into their movies. And it was just that late 60s, early 70s vibe. So for me, because I love that period, for me, it totally works. But it becomes a sort of a normalized thing of revisionist westerns. You have, uh, like you said, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Then later you have Walker with a soundtrack by Joe Strummer, of all people. You have The Long Riders with a soundtrack by Ry Cooter. You yeah. have 
Heaven's Gate with a soundtrack by David Mansfield, not regular people scoring stuff. You have Dead Man with a soundtrack by Neil Young. You have Proposition or Assassination of Jesse James, soundtrack by Nick Cave. And so it's like a thing. It's like you could look at the Mount Rushmore of singer-songwriters of the past uh, 60 years. It seems like the big the big ones, Cohen, Dylan, Neil Young, uh, whatever your mileage is on Nick Cave or whatever, they've all done Westerns, it's, it's revisionist Westerns. It's just a really interesting thing. Why? Maybe because they have folk roots. It just becomes a thing like, I'm going to do the score of a Western. But I don't know any other genre that has so many of those types doing their soundtracks. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect harmony and they just they just they it's like chocolate and peanut butter they go together really well. Yes, exactly. Well, we haven't talked yet about the great Hungarian Vilmos Zsigmond. I don't think we've even really mentioned him by name that much yet and obviously so much of this film's power and so much of his beauty comes directly from him and I love how Laszlo Kovacs, the other Hungarian of that era, they they wanted him. He couldn't do it. He's like, all right, well, you can hire my friend who's even better than I am. And Robert Upton was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. But in yet another example of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences being one of the dumbest institutions in human history, Vilma Zsigmond wasn't even eligible for an Academy Award because he wasn't part of some union. It's like, all right, well, then y'all clearly are just whatever the Academy is designed to do it, it's not the celebration of artistry because anybody, even if you're fucking blind, could see that this is the most beautifully shot film of 1971. And I, Vilma Shigman obviously had many other legendary films later in his career, but you really can't say enough about, I mean, this, the whole documentary Visions of Light is kind of built around this and Nestor Almendros work on of Days of Heaven. Like yeah. this is one of the great photographic experiences to be had in cinema. Yeah, and and Vilmos Zygmunt, you know, he he'd kind of come up with the uh, he'd come up working on like some low budget stuff, so he was able to work quickly and cheaply. He did a few like Arch Hall Junior movies. I don't know if you've ever seen The Sadist. I've not. Uh, oh, it's it's basically um, based on Charles Starkweather, the same you know guy that uh, Badlands is based off of. Okay, uh, and it's just Arch Hall Junior just doing this like over-the-top silly performance he's got these people captive at a junkyard and it's black and white and he shot that it's really well shot for just a cheap-ass movie he did uh, deadwood 76 with arch hall jr too yeah he uh, um altman wanted like you said La- laszlo kovacs and he was like oh no i'm working on something else but get get vilmos he's he's even better than i am and i guess they would always kind of uh, prop each other up they had each other's back instead of competing with each other they were helping each other get work and of course a few years later he's shooting shit like close encounters of the third kind like i mean he is one of the great dps from from any era and obviously much has been said about the fact that they were pre-flashing the negatives but it fucking yes. looks gorgeous and i don't know a damn thing about photography but essentially they would allow a little bit of light on the negative and then they would shoot with it just make it look a little cloudier and the risk is like are your dailies even going to come out are you wrecking footage or is the film even going to be usable and then of course at the very end they make that pivot where they stop pre-flashing and everything is much crisper and it makes the 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 conclusion of the film much more electric as a result but holy shit pre-flashing the negative it makes this movie look unlike any other film from that period. I mean, I love the way Peckinpah's films look, but it's just this film's got a slightly different flavor as a result, and it's such a masterstroke uh, uh, in terms of just raw technique. Yeah, the, the the whole film feels like a memory until you get to 
the end gunfight and then it becomes this is happening now like it is yeah that's a it was a, a brilliant choice to to go with that now i've heard different things about what inspired the use of flashing um the assistant director uh tommy thompson he claims that the tinting and flashing and fogging and all that was altman's idea he said uh, quote altman had a yellow sweatshirt and an inexpensive polaroid camera this is in pre-production and uh, by clicking the shutter twice without advancing, you double expose the roll. And in pre-production, Altman took a picture of his this yellow uh, sweatshirt that he had that he was wearing, and then uh, you know took a picture of an actor, and he took it to Zygmunt and said, "That's the look I want." Yeah, that's the story they tell in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and that's the first time I heard that story as well. Yeah, and then he says, "You're flashing the film; it's too dangerous." And Altman pro- replied, "Let me worry about that." And that was a kind of a thing like the once it was done, the studio couldn't change it or anything. So um, now Vilmos Sigmund claims that he got the idea from a film called uh, Deadly Affair, which I haven't seen. Uh, but I, I'm not sure. But Vilmos does say that Altman didn't want it sharp. He would shoot stuff and Altman would be like, you know, no, that's not right. It needs to be it needs to be more blurry. They would use fog filters over everything. They would put a woman's stocking over the lens and, uh, you know, all that. So, yeah, it's brilliantly done. I've heard that a lot of it or most of it was shot by natural light or candlelight. Leon Erickson says that. He claims that also, like, they would build the sets with breakaway walls so that they could get a lot of those movements and things uh, more easily. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like it was a genuine collaboration where Vilmish in his interview says, like, I'm not going to try and remember whose ideas were whose on any given day. But he clearly learned a lot from the experience. He admits that Robert Altman taught him a lot about how to use a zoom lens. And as I mentioned earlier, like the zoom into the uh, the bad guys off in the distance or the zoom into Warren Beatty when the mandolin kicks in. Those are pitch perfect, like textbook examples of how to use a zoom lens really effectively. And also, as you mentioned before, because he had so much experience shooting low budget movies, Robert Altman whether it's by method or madness, he's kind of disorganized and they never really knew what they were going to shoot on any given day. They'd kind of wake up and be like, oh, well, what are we shooting? And he was able to be very spontaneous with his camera and deliver what Robert Altman needed without a lot of setup. And while the lighting might've been minimal, I think the lighting is just gorgeous. Like when, um, Mrs. Miller's eating that pile of schlop, like the eggs and the stew and the tea and all that kind of stuff. She's as beautifully lit in that moment as she was at any point in her career, even though she's stuffing an entire table full of food down her face. And yeah, I think the lighting in this is second to none. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very much Rembrandt. Yeah, poetic realism and all that kind of good stuff to use a lofty term. Yeah, real dark, golden hues, kind of fuzzy, kind of blurry. But, uh, yeah, perfect. And, 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 uh, yeah, so it's just beautifully shot. And then of course later he, the same year he worked uh, on the hired hand, which also has some gorgeous shots, uh, not as visually, uh, striking or cohesive as this, I think, but still has some great, uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, uh, shots in it. Another, uh, you know, offbeat revisionist Western. And then of course later, um, with uh, Heaven's Gate, and uh, I'll get into yeah Heaven's Gate and Deer so- Hunter. I mean, Vilma Zygman in a, like a ten-year period, it's just awe-inspiring what he was able to accomplish. Uh, yeah, definitely. And so uh, fucking blowout are- for Brian De Palma. I mean, it's just like one movie after another. Like, holy shit, holy shit, holy! He shot that too. Oh my fucking god! And it's just like so many good movies. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and then uh, 
with with the set, which we talked about a little bit, but um, but I, I, I really want to kind of focus on that for for a bit is like you like you said they're living on the set actors are living on the set the crew's living on the set they're draft dodgers in canada you know living there you know i guess it was between these two like housing um developments so it really wasn't even that far in the wilderness but just the way it was uh shot just makes it look that way leon erickson um robert almond said he's the purest guy that he's ever worked with um, I know when he was doing Bruce McCloud, he was actually trying to build a flying <laughs> apparatus that would he work. He kind of pulled something like, like Leonardo da Vinci and actually pulled, do it for real. <laughs> yes. And uh, he, he claims that, like, you know, Altman, basically his only direction was, you know, give me a town I can believe and I'll give you a film you can believe. So Leon went to uh, Calgary to a museum and he bought everything there. Uh, that's where he got the steam wagon from, you know, and so he, he builds this set, all the drawers are just filled with antiques and different things the actors, you know, could use that the actors were given, uh, old silverware that they, you know, Altman would say, this is from the old country and this is very important to you. Stuff you'd never see, but would just let the, let the actors, uh, you know, build, build their characters. And I like how the actors, like I think they point out in the um, commentary, how they're dressed oftentimes in the exact same shit they would have worn in the boat over from Europe. They're not walking around like John Wayne and Rio Bravo or Red River. They look like European immigrants, and they're it's a it's a much more I guess they're not trying to be mythic or larger than life. I, I mean, Robert Altman was, I don't know if this is true or not. You probably know more about this than I do, but he was adamant about the fact that cowboy hats were not as like, prevalent in the Wild West as they, are, as they are in movies. And that's why you only see one cowboy hat in the entire film. But most of these people look like they just flew, like have taken the boat over from Germany or from Switzerland or UK or wherever. And they're still wearing the same shit they wore on the, on the, on the boat ride over. Yeah. Well, if anyone follows my Twitter, they, they'll know that like uh, I'm very pedantic about uh, Western uh, costuming. And and uh, one of the things that I always complain about is Westerns where everyone in town is just dressed like a cowboy. They all have cowboy hats on. They all have big, you know, big bandanas and stuff. And it's like these are functional items that if you're in a town, there's no reason why you're wearing a big bandana. Why would you wear a bandana? It looks ridiculous. Yeah, bandana is not a fashion statement. It's a, it has a functional purpose. It's still the Victorian era. And people would, if they're in a town, if, they're, if you're not a cowboy, you're not going to dress like a cowboy. You're not going to have a Stetson or a sombrero or something. You're going to wear a, a suit, a vest, a coat maybe, um, a derby hat or a top hat or something. It's going to look you know, it's going to look like London uh, at that, at that time. It's going to look Victorian. It's going to look Dickensian. And, uh, so this is, I think one of the first films to really move away from that dumb cowboy look. Every character is just a cowboy in jeans and uh, cowboy boots and a big hat and a scarf. It just doesn't, you know, so, uh, that was one of the things that I guess, Altman told the costume department, he said, get me stuff, 19th century clothing, but don't give me any of that cowboy shit. And I guess the, the actors picked out, he said, pick out your costume. You get to two shirts and a coat, one pair of pants and one pair of boots. And he, you know, the actors would pick out the stuff with the most character, you know, the most torn up and stuff. And then he said, all right, that's your clothing. That's all you're allowed to wear for the rest of this shoot. The weather is a bastard, so you better start fucking sewing all those, all that shit up because it's all you have. 
and uh, and that comes across. And so, yeah, this I think is the first western to do that. Later westerns follow that assassination of Jesse James. You're not seeing cowboys or anything like that. Um, Heaven's Gate, which I think is so indebted to this film, it gets to such a ridiculous degree with Heaven's Gate, where you're not seeing any cowboys, despite the fact that the whole crux of the movie is about cattle rustling. <laughs> so in that movie. Uh, he really, Tomino really emphasizes what uh, Altman establishes is that people aren't talking like they're from Texas. They're yeah, off the boat. They definitely didn't grow up in this area. They're not. They're not first generation. Um, uh, the accents are amazing. I love the British. Like when there's this one great, great little bit when McCabe is looking for Mrs. Miller and one of the other horses says, "Oh, she's got company." But the way she's like, she's got company. The way she says it, it's yes. so quick and. So, but it's a beautiful little detail and just reminds you, hey, all these girls, they're, they're, they're fresh off the boat. And, of course, Julie Christie just leans into that accent accent when she's like, I'm hungry enough I could eat a bloody horse. Like where she doesn't pronounce the H's. Like when you pronounce words like 13, like 13 or horse, like horse, yeah. that's just delightful. And I think she, just Julie Christie's, she could do no wrong at this point. She was doing shit like Don't Look Now. And she'd already done things like Darling and Billy Liar. But obviously uh, fucking Dr. Zhivago. And she was about to do shampoo. And this is when... She is in her prime. Uh-huh. Company, I see. Uh, you got supper, Jim. Alfie, uh, uh, get the tablecloth. Uh, got some nice tripe, and uh, this is done. Just putting the stew on the fire. Got any more of them uh, mountain oysters? Ma- uh, got some nice deer meat. Got any eggs? Fresh eggs? Yeah, fresh eggs. Yeah. I'll have four eggs fried, some stew, and I want some strong tea. Strong tea, right. Uh, McCabe, uh, I'll just have my double whiskey and a raw egg. Right. And a sheet, right? Give all them boys a drink on me. Yeah. Hi. You know, if you want to make out you're such a fancy dude, you ought to wear something besides that cheap jockey club cologne. I love her accent and just that whole pitch when she's talking about all the different things that she can do and all the dangers and pitfalls that he needs to avoid that he won't be able to because he's a total dumbass. It's just, uh, it's, it's wonderful, beautiful stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's great. And so, yeah, just so, so the look of it and, and a lot of that is, is established even in the book. I mean, it specifies things like the miners are dirty and stuff. They're not wearing guns. And that's one of the other things is that in most Westerns, everyone's just got a gun on their hip, no matter who they are. And they're just going through town with guns. And that's not really how the wild West was. Uh, most towns enforced some form of gun control. So when, you know, uh, when McCabe comes into town with a gun, that's a, oh, that's a big thing, you know? Um, so that's one of the other aspects, but, uh, yeah, I mean, big influence on Deadwood. You look at Deadwood, very little cowboy looking stuff. A lot of, most of it looks, like I said, very Dickensian, you know, and, and the idea of the immigrants and stuff. And Chimino takes it to a ridiculous degree to where, you know, 1890s, uh, Johnson County, Wyoming is, just full of like Romani and like Russian <laughs> immigrants. Like the, the, the whole, that's the whole place. And it's like, well, that's not, you're, you're just pushing it way in the uh, other direction. But that's, that's basically the groundwork that 
Altman lays in this in this film, which makes it different from um, any Western up to that point and uh, definitely more realistic. It's not it, it's it's one of the most authentic Westerns ever made, if not the most in terms of feeling, in terms of certain details, certain things are off as a pedantic person. Like gun belts aren't quite right and the clothes might not be quite right, but, and, and, you know, the steam engine is like 10 years later, the steam wagon that they take up and the gun isn't, you know, so there are things that are, that are off if this is in fact taking place in 1901 or 1902, um, which is kind of suggested by the lawyer having a picture of McKinley who was killed in 1901 uh, in his office and stuff. So you get the idea of that, that is the time frame. But so those maybe specific pedantic things are, are off, but, but in, in general, getting a feel for what the West, uh, was like, you really can't, you probably can't find a, a better, uh, approximation of it. Well, than, in terms of this. Western life, have you ever eaten McCabe's favorite meal, the double whiskey with the raw egg? Um, um, I have, I have had whiskey with egg, with an egg in it before, but usually with something else too. Gotcha. I mean, every <laughs> time I watch this movie, I'm like, I love whiskey. I love, I love scotch. I love eggs. I've never, I've never had the itch to try them together, but man, even at the end when he's fighting these guys and running around town trying to stay alive, he takes a break to have a double whiskey. To run a yeah, I think I think I've had uh, whiskey sours with uh, with an egg in it before and stuff. The citrus, I think, kills any, you know, uh, the of the bacteria of a raw egg. That's actually straight from the book. He, uh, one of the interesting things about the book is that McCabe, uh, when he's the the morning of like uh, the gunfighters coming to get him, he shaves, he colors his graying mustache. Uh, he puts on his fanciest ascot and he has a breakfast of, you know, whiskey and raw eggs. And it's just like, he's like focusing on the wrong things, you know? And as he's dying, he asks uh, Mrs. Miller to comb his hair and stuff. So you, you get the idea that he's, uh, somewhat out of his depth and focusing to the end on what, you know, not his own livelihood, but what is it? What, how's he going to look, you know, like what, what are people's impression of him? And that's, kind of McCabe's problem throughout the book, the script and, and the film. So, so Erickson, yeah, he, he, he bought up this museum in Calgary. He had lived in Wyoming. He grew up in Wyoming and that's where I think a lot of it came from. He said he didn't do a whole lot of research to the era. He just kind of extrapolated on things that he had seen as a kid in Wyoming. Altman himself, I think mostly researched, uh, um, photos of like the Yukon of like Dawson, just like a lot of the mining towns that sprung up in Canada or Alaska. Um, that was sort of the reference point for how things are going to look and, and, and all that. I mean, it's just perfect. Uh, almost outside of just, just a few things. They, with the scene with the lawyer, they kind of uh, they dial down the great William the Devane in, a, in an early role, who's funny as fucking shit in that part. Yes, yeah, and uh, yeah, and 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 they dial back just the idea like of him just directly telling McCabe like they're gonna kill you. You know, he becomes he becomes more of a deluded guy who thinks that he's gonna, you know, he he he. He sees McCabe as, you know, just a stepping stone to a bigger political career. Yeah, he's he's, just... he's going to play a symbolic role. But the, the way he's selling McCabe on this stuff and McCabe 
probably was a little bit more aware of the danger he's in prior to that meeting. But then, of course, he gets back and he's talking all this nonsense about how he's going to stand up for himself. Like he's he's bought this line of bullshit hook, line, and sinker. But it's it's a great for me. It's a great scene showing the changing of the West, where businessmen and lawyers are starting to have their way, and the days of like the um, kind of the the gunslinger are very rapidly drawing to a close, and men like McCabe are becoming slightly out of step with their times, but it's just yet another detail that the modern era is on its way, but it's just a new form of danger and corruption. Yeah, and he takes what's explicit in the book and the script and makes it implicit. So instead of him just directly saying, you're going to get killed, McCabe is like, I just don't want to get killed. And he's like, until people stop dying for freedom, we'll never be free, you know? And, uh, and, uh, yeah, just consummate bullshit artist. Yeah. And then of course he tells him they won't be able to lift one finger against you and let's not go to the marshal and, and all that. So, uh, I, that works better. I don't like the idea that I don't like that. They name the lawyer Clement Samuels. I think that's, that's the kind of like in jokey thing that I think the movie had avoided. And so like, I don't need a reference to Samuel Clements. I don't know why they even did that. I don't know what that lawyer has to do with Mark Twain. Beyond that, it works just much better in the film. So, um, you know, one of, one of the things that's in the, in the book is like, you know, Mrs. Miller is always going with these company men. And at one point after they have their big argument about the deal and all that, she leaves with the company men. And McCabe is just like, it's just so struck, like ho- it feels horrible. She's abandoning him. But he later finds out she actually goes to the town herself to argue McCabe's case and defend him. And he becomes very touched by that. And the, there's some, there's something kind of similar in the movie where, like, like you mentioned before, when he tries to go up to her room and the lady says, oh, she's got company. And he thinks, oh, it's it's the dirty one of the, some dirty minor, you know, sleeping with her, which he just hates, you know. Um, but what I, what was actually happening is that's when that's the scene when um, she's talking to Ida about like you know, hey, you you had sex before for money basically, but now you get to keep some of it and uh, and all that. Like I said, that's one of the things where the movie kind of uh, says that well, Mrs. Miller is right when she's talking about this, and I think that's maybe a little bit of a cheat. You get the idea, like Ida is talking about how she's maybe I'm just small. And then we later get kind of a joke about how uh, Keith Carradine's character has this small dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, he doesn't. Uh, he kind of registers of talking about him, but the girl—I yeah. think she's speaking in Chinese—but she's basically very quickly making a gesture with her finger. And there's a like a, a half-second moment where you see Carradine's face kind of reacting in confusion or alarm. But yeah, obviously, yeah. you know, he has the time it's of his so life. And, <laughs> yeah, and then, but what? So then you get kind of this funny in joke to where when he's leaving. She's the one that stays after all the horrors wave goodbye. Just, bye, cowboy. Bye, cowboy. You know, like she's like finally found someone like who fits her because she's so small, you know. Yeah. So you're getting kind of like a thing where not only is she like somewhat more independent, uh, but now she's also kind of reached a level of like sexual satisfaction that she wasn't going to get in marriage. And I think that's a little bit of a pipe dream of you know a guy who visits whores like of course they like it you know yeah, so it's one of the illusions they have to cling to otherwise they won't be able to get it up <laughs> yeah but i think so maybe i think her little subplot is it's fun and nice maybe a little bit of a cheat but still yeah but this um, movie once again it needs some of that sweetness or the movie would just be so grim and disgust because it's once again this is a filthy movie and it's a, everything with a lot of filthy downtrodden people if it was just complete immersion in reality 
I don't know if the movie would have been made or if anybody would have been on a stomach. It has to have some of that romanticism or some of those beautiful moments to offset all the horrible cruelty that uh, permeates so much of the rest of the film. Yeah, definitely. It is. Yeah. When you go too far in that direction, you get like a dirty little, you get dirty little Billy, which is about as fun as like getting hit on the head. Uh, but I love how also there are these great little sweet moments between some of the kind of non-existent, nothing characters. Like, um, one of one of the, uh, regulars of Robert Altman is John Shuck who plays Smalley, who's incredible in mash. And he has this great scene early on where he's talking to the bartender about how to, how to shave his beard and that sort of thing. And then like, like 45 minutes later, the bartender is like, like kind of trying to show off what he's done. And Smalley like barely even notices or doesn't really notice. Like, but he's actually trying to, it's almost like he's making a gesture of friendship of, or intimacy that he just can't understand. But it just makes me howl how dismissive he is. But once again, this is one of those storylines that could have just as easily been cut, but it just fleshes out the community so well where you really feel like you know these people by the end of the story. Yeah, and I also just love uh, when McCabe has like, you know, basically pushed off these mining uh, guys and the, or the mining company guys. And uh, later, when McCabe's like, "Are they're not here anymore?" and he's like, "Oh no, they left this morning. You handled them perfectly." Yeah. And you just get <laughs> how the rube, like, just the, like I said, the hierarchy of intelligence of like how the rubes are like, "Oh, McCabe really showed those idiots." And McCabe's like, oh, no, now I'm in trouble. You know, that's a great that's a great moment for him. Um, And uh, also, like, uh, you know, this is not this is not a like you said, a deep film in Robert Altman's career. But he'd done a lot of television and stuff. And he did an episode of Bonanza, which is not very good. But um, it's called, I think, uh, what is it called? Bank job or something to that. And uh, in that there's a mining company that wants to take over the Ponderosa. And uh, and so there's interesting parallels. Yeah, Bank Run, uh, 1961. It's the episode of Bonanza he did. It, yeah. it says here he did eight episodes of Bonanza from 1960 to 1961. So yeah, he was a TV veteran. He did Roaring Twenties and Peter Gunn and U.S. Marshal and all kinds of shit. Yeah, and this one is what's interesting is like in the book, it's a the mining company is called the Snake River Mining Company, but then uh, it changes to Harrison Shaughnessy. And Harrison is the name of the mining company in that Bonanza episode. So I don't know if that was just like a holdover that Altman took with him or what. Um, but that's it's much more of a comedy farcical episode. But it still has those same uh, themes of uh, encroaching, like encroaching uh, capitalism, destroying, just trying to destroy the little man. Of course, it works out well for the uh, for the Cartwrights in that, <laughs> unlike this film. Well, we've we've kind of talked about a, a, a bunch of different shit at this point, but I guess now I just want to get into, on a personal level, like what are the moments that really just grab you as a just a, a, a lover of westerns, as a fan of westerns? Like, what is it about this movie that keeps you coming back to it? Because I think a lot of people might find this movie to be kind of impersonal, or it's kind of it keeps you at a distance. But I feel like as you watch it and you start to fall in love with these characters and you start to fall in love with this world, that you start finding these moments that seem so small and insignificant the first time around. They start taking on all this kind of larger meanings. And I guess you start to really just like appreciate these like really small nuances where if you're just if you're if you're checking your phone or you're kind of walking in and out of the room that you're just going to fly right by. So what it is about this film that really 
keeps David Lambert coming back to it after so many years? Uh, you know, like I said before, the sense and feeling of uh, of the time and place is superior to just about any Western that I've ever, ever seen. Um, you really feel like you are just peeking in on an actual mining town in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1900s. And yet it still retains a certain mythic quality. It doesn't, um, of of all the revisionist Westerns, I feel that it is the one that has the, uh, that really retains, it has the strength of its convictions. It, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't really compromise itself in ways that something like the Culpepper Cattle Company does or Bad Company, um, where certain shortcuts or things that a lot of Westerns uh, do, you know, in terms of like uh, marksmanship, shooting guns out of people's hands. And that stuff, you know, it's even in the script, like McCabe is, shoots like a, a rope with a pistol while he's drunk. And, it, and it's just stuff that they kind of ironed out to where it just honestly all of it feels true yeah like the tropes that make a movie feel artificial have been removed exactly but it doesn't take it to it doesn't try to push your face in it like a dirty little billy to where that one almost becomes artificial in the way that it's trying to skirt you know uh genre norms this still has the big showdown like Altman says, and I think maybe he overstates his case to a certain extent, but you know, he, he says, you know, this is kind of a standard Western plot, um, which I don't think is necessarily true, but the idea of, you know, these killers coming into town and it's sort of a high noon thing and stuff like that. So he still does touch upon those tropes, but he says, this is what the real version of that trope, where that actually comes from. This is the real version of it. Um, as opposed to something like dirty little Billy, which is just trying to skirt expectation at every turn. And it just becomes something that is just hard to even get into or watch. Well, I think it's like the ultimate Testament to the power of movie stars, because you have a director here who avoided working with movie stars and liked to, he always said, Oh, I have casts of hundreds of stars. Cause he liked just He would find these interesting people and he wouldn't necessarily audition people, but he would meet people and he'd kind of, like put him in his back pocket for for later use for interesting characters but, but he admitted when you cast Warren Beatty you don't need to spend 20 minutes building him up as the as the center of attention because he's fucking Warren Beatty he walks in like oh my god there's Warren Beatty and he's like you know he's attractive and he's glamorous he's this huge fucking movie star and it's funny seeing how by i guess em- employing the hollywood technique of using stars it helps keep the movie from becoming too grim and grisly. If you cast some ugly dude who's not necessarily like, or, or some unknown, the movie would have been kind of dep- depressing to watch. But at a bare yeah. minimum, you still have these two incredibly glamorous stars keep keeping it going. And so for me, it's like the ultimate power that movie stars have a role to play, even in a grim and gritty kind of film like this. Yeah, and I guess you know, supposedly they were eyeing Elliot Gould, but he didn't. He was busy or some kind of thing, which would have been. A, a different film. And yeah, I mean, he's great like, in Long Goodbye. I mean, he uh, Long Goodbye, if you want to talk about great Robert Altman movies, Long Goodbye is yeah. totally different in tone, totally different in flavor, but he carries that movie just fine. Yeah, same kind of uh, genre-defying uh, 
film, but while still holding on to the aspects of the genre that still interest him. But um, yeah, and you know, Warren Beatty, he's not one of my favorite actors, uh, but I always kind of appreciate his willingness to uh, poke holes in his image. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde, he's got like erectile dysfunction, yep. you know, and in this, he's a buffoon. Which in real life, so, he did not. He was a notorious coxman. Yeah, the real, yeah. Oh, wait, remember, Warren Beatty? Or, yeah, Warren or Beatty. Clyde. Yeah, yeah, Warren Beatty. I, I can't oh. remember which one of his girlfriends said it, but she said basically like he ruined sex for it because he wanted it so often and so frequently. She's like, he must have been, she was like, he must have been taking some sort of vitamins, but he just, he could get it up multiple times a day. <laughs> he just, I guess, uh, someone said, I can't remember who, some model or something said that, uh, the, like the way he seduced her is he took her to see uh, Deep Throat. Oh, wow. <laughs> like a Travis Bickle move. But I guess in the 70s, that was cool. Yeah, in the early okay. 70s, I think there's a brief shining moment where it's considered like kind of a wild, outrageous thing to go see porn in the theater before they became basically like kind of beat shacks that like homeless people would kind of wander into. I think for like a brief shining moment, movies like Behind the Green Door, it was considered kind of exciting and provocative to go see a uh, a porn film. But obviously, when you look as good as Warren Beatty does, and also uh, born and raised in uh, Richmond, Virginia, since I, I was born there myself, um, uh, I've always, uh, I guess I've always taken an interest in his career. He... It's a weird guy where like I love things like shampoo. I love things like this. I love things like Bonnie and Clyde. I I, could, I couldn't give a damn less about movies like Reds, like his like his political passion projects and that sort of thing. But yeah, it is funny how he's been able to maintain his mystique in spite of like long periods of inactivity. I think he should have done Kill Bill with uh, Quentin Tarantino. He originally had the Bill part offered to him. I think it was a huge yeah. mistake to turn it down. But he definitely carved out um, his own chapter in the world of film history. Yeah, he he seems aware of his image of the sort of the good looking kind of he's got to me he's he got like major like douche douchey vibes, but but he's I'm able. I'm sure there are parts of him that are totally insufferable. Yeah, well, he's to me he seems kind of insufferable, but I think I think that he also seems self aware enough to. Um, to you know not just capitalize off of his pretty boy image he does i mean mccabe is kind of a douchey insufferable dude in a, in a certain extent and i think it's one of those pieces of casting that i uh, you know like i think very similar uh barry linden with um and ryan o'neill ryan o'neill you know it's that same sort of like uh or or richard gear in days of heaven it's like uh you know uh, none of these guys are my favorite actors. Um, all of them seem douchey to a certain extent, but it's just uh, for whatever reason, like with these uh, tours, they seem to be able to hone in on. Is the, it possible uh, to avoid becoming a douchebag if you're a, if you're a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful man? Like, like for a long time, I had a hard time with Leonardo DiCaprio because of that, and then eventually, around like the time of The Departed, I started coming around, and now I'm like a, a fan. But I definitely suffer from this thing where. The more attractive, like Jared Leto, who I just, I wish someone would just yeah. dunk him in hydrochloric acid. I can't stand that guy. But I'm sure if he looked like Warren Oates, I'd probably have less of a problem with him. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's well, a weird thing. He probably, he probably wouldn't be uh, who he is. But, you know, as a beautiful, beautiful man, I can assure you that uh, not all of us are douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I feel like Warren is trying to do something different. Like, there's that great little moment where he's sitting there messing with his watch, and he's farting, and he's burping, and he reaches over to grab the bottle, and it kind of falls, and he catches it, 
And you can tell he's trying to be, be a little bit more rugged. The fact that he's got this big gnarly beard covering up his beautiful face shows he's not trying to be the, 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 the dashing good-looking guy that we saw in movies like Splendor in the Grass. So I yeah. like the fact that and he is trying to you know, rough up his image a bit in this and taking this huge creative risk. Yeah, and it, and and it was his idea to, have, for example, have like the gold tooth, uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, exactly. But so he so he's great, um, uh, you know. The, uh, scenes that I love the the when Butler confronts him and he just is back down. You 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 see him, you know, you see him backing down people a lot. Sheehan, he doesn't want to do a business partnership with Sheehan. He says to him. You know, uh, what, what does he say? He goes, uh, uh, he says, uh, it's, what is he, I, rule, rules or order or something. You got to have some kind of rules or order. He's like, that, that I'm fine with. I don't like partners. Yeah. And then immediately, you know, he takes on a partner. After, yeah, he takes, he on, takes like on like the, the ultimate partner who just totally and runs the so, show for him. Yeah. And then you just see him get dressed down the way he's dressed down. Uh, Sheehan, so perfectly done dropping i mean immediately established butler is talking about the chinaman and and you drop the dynamite down or whatever and he drops this plate on the ground yeah. and, and mckay picks stoops over picks and picks it up, it up and you immediately know who's in power and he yeah, tries and he's like, well let's go over here and talk in private he's like no we're fine right here like everything that mccabe says gets contradicted and he, he loses offers, every single battle offers him a cigar have one of mine like exactly every- Butler tops. No, it's, it's negotiating one hundred and one. You you anchor the conversation where you want it to be. You never let them anchor it anywhere else. Exactly, and it's and it's almost a play of like the scene of like a, you know, um, man who shot Liberty Valance. Pick up my stake, Liberty, or whatever. And and it's basically kind of that sort of inversion of that, where it's like instead of the two tough guys who will not uh, you know, acquiesce to the other person. He just immediately picks up this plate and, Oh, you know, Oh, try to make a deal. And he's, I don't make deals, you know, uh, I'm here to hunt bear. I'm here to hunt bear. And that's one of the things is McCabe is, Oh, he kind of is relieved or whatever, but he's wearing a bearskin suit. So it's almost like a thing where it's like, uh, and he hangs it up and everything. So it's, you get kind of the idea that Butler is hinting to him, like, uh, I'm hunting bear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then it's kind of that even Western cliche. Are you calling his best friend's best friend a liar? You know, I love a it. He's not even that good of an actor, which I think almost like helps the part in a way where he's oh, perfect. he's yeah. such a this belligerent little shit. But that's what you I mean, that's what you would look for if you were hiring like a seventeen year old kid to be a killer for hire. Like that's the exact kind of personality he's like he's likely to have. You know, he's got a massive chip on his shoulder. Picks a fight at every available opportunity, but I, I love the way they uh, the way they sh- they fleshed out that character in just a few key scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's per- it's perfectly done. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the great scenes in in the film. And um, he, you know, Altman still gives you like he he still gives you what you're what you're coming for in the genre he still gives you a final duel he still gives you a high noon kind of showdown Absolutely. you get a killer shootout you get these great whores i mean mrs miller is the ultimate whore in in western history and some really sweet scenes like when he's saying to her like i ain't never tried to do nothing other than put a smile on your face i mean there's their moments of connection are brief and not often but when it when it's when it's there, it's really there, and so there's a ton of heart there, which makes the tragedy of him being you know shot three times at the end all all the more intense. And I just feel like 
this movie reaches some haunting beauty that so few, like a lot of, I feel like a film like The Great Silence is reaching for, but it doesn't quite completely achieve because it's just kind of too nihilistic that it kind of can't get out of its own way. It's, but, yeah. I but mean, just the, the sound of all that, like the wind howling and the snow falling, it's so eerie, that terrifying beauty of silence in this location. And it's just, there's no other movie like it. Yeah, and that's also one of the great things about that final duel. No, no music, nothing yeah. to give you. You know, uh, you're you're just following, it and, it, and it's so suspenseful. You've been led to believe that uh, McCabe is just completely incompetent. I mean, Butler basically lays out like that. That man, that man never killed anybody. Yeah, and it's really only with the with the um, you know the Derringer up his sleeve that you go, oh, okay, so. McCabe did actually kill Bill Roundtree. They kind of confirm it for you, but it's just done so subtly and uh, so so perfectly. Yeah, I mean, he really st- strips things down to their essence to where you can you can uh, believe it. You know, shooting the kid in the back—that's from the book. Ben Maddow changed that, and that's. But it's like a thing that, like, if you were in a gunfight at that time, that's Fuck, what you yeah, do. Yeah, you're you, gonna shoot the guy in the back. You already know he's a total like hell on wheels with a gun. <laughs> and I love how, like Warren the way he kind of is like leaning backwards. It's almost like he's not quite ready to like to pull the trigger, but like he seems so like ill-equipped. But then he finally commits, and of course the guy spins around and shoots him a few times. But that that the way that scene is staged is perfect. But yeah, if you're in a gunfight one on three, fuck yeah, shoot them all in the back. And of course, McCabe gets shot in the back by the uh, the guy with the damn elephant gun. So they're all shooting each other in the back. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that is really the that is the old west. Everyone was just shooting each other in the back. I mean, there's not very very few actual duels uh, fought or straight up gunfights. So yeah, so that that that's great. There's little great touches like when McCabe is, you know, waiting there, and then like uh, he hears something, and it's just this runaway donkey, which yeah, which I is guess an accident. Actually, yeah, yeah, actually happened, and and Altman was like, oh, I got to shoot it, you know, get it real well, quick. Altman's a very loose, great. instinctive director, and if something weird happens, of course he's gonna get it on camera, and it's and it's fantastic. It's like something that would be like in a Fellini movie. I mean, quite literally, is a shot of a horse is walking down the street in the middle of La Strada, and yeah, that's. Uh, uh, it's it's great stuff. It's like early set vintage early seventies stuff. Yeah, there 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 are just a million great scenes, great touches throughout. All just a real attention to detail, but all always usually coming out of uh, of character, a place of who these characters are. And so yeah, it's uh, like I said in my t- probably top five westerns, which you know coming what are into your top it, five westerns. If you had if some if if someone put a gun to your head right now and said name them, what are, what are they? Oh man, uh, uh, Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid uh, is up there. Of course, the Wild Bunch, um, maybe the Searchers. Because um, I feel like for your top five. All of those, like the way we did with the Wild Bunch and the way we did with this, they all deserve like a big episode. And I, I'd be totally down with doing a big episode about the Searchers because John Ford has been covered once by us when we talked about My Darling Clementine, and I did a big episode about his non-westerns with um, Chuck R. Mystery. But man, it's like I could do an episode about Stagecoach, no problem. I could do an episode about Fort Apache or at a bare minimum like the um, kind of the Cavalry Trilogy. And I could do an episode about the Searchers. Uh, and there's so many other cool ones like Wagon Master, which never get any love. And obviously Manish uh, Liberty uh, gets a lot Wagon of – Yeah, but Wagon Master t- gets totally slept on. But 
we might have to start dipping our toes into some John Ford. I keep trying to pitch you on uh, Anthony Mann, but if you don't want to do Anthony Mann, John Ford is uh, he's screaming our name. And of course, oh, I, I'm down. I'm down to do Anthony Mann. Uh, I think Winchester '73 might make my top five, top top ten for sure. Where do you stand on uh, Red River, Rio Bravo, El Dorado, and Rio Lobo, the old Howard Hawks contributions to the genre? I love Red River, and I love uh, Rio Bravo. Uh, El Dorado's uh, good. Uh, Real what? Real Lobo? Uh, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Rio Lobo, I think Howard, Howard, Howard Hawks was running on fumes <laughs> at that yeah. point. But I have a lot of love for Red River and Rio Bravo. Those are two of my all-time faves. My, my top five Westerns is not that different from yours. I'd probably have to throw in one Italian in there, throw the good, the bad, and the ugly in there, or once upon a time in the West, but I do love the Italian shtick. Sh- sh- but man, Wild Bunch, Pat Garrett, yeah, Searchers. I mean, yeah. these, these are all essential films, but I, I agree, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it comes out of nowhere, and it's such an unconventional Western, and it's so different in style, and it's so completely, totally, utterly unique. It's um yeah I think it deserves to be mentioned in the same breath with any of those other films. I've read that John Huston said it was the best western of all time. Um, I don't know. It's funny, I don't, Robert Altman, when it comes to uh, being complimentary of John Huston, in that same um, on the features on the on the Blu-ray on the Dick Cavett show, Robert Altman mentions the myth the Misfits as one of his favorite movies, and it's kind of a it's got western ingredients. It's got people in cowboy hats, but obviously it's modern day. But for people out there who like Robert Altman who want to see some of the films that informed his approach, the misfits he felt like was a, was being slept on by, by a lot of people. Well, when the book was optioned, supposedly Houston was interested in making it. Uh, Roman Polanski was kind of floating around, interested in making the, an adaptation of the book. So Houston um, but, it. it would have been a very different movie, but he could have totally made a great McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. 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 Um, but um, uh, I know for, I know definitely Houston said that, in I think 1975, I think he said that McCabe and Mrs. Miller was the great slept on film, you know, of our, of our time. And he was very um, complimentary about the Ballad of Cable Hogue, which I think Ballad of Cable Hogue is very different from McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but it's in the same kind of strange inbred Western family of like offbeat, unconventional Westerns. So if people, if, I mean, it's basically a, a love story and a musical, <laughs> but I think uh, Ballad of Cable Hogue is another great Western that a lot of people, for whatever reason, just do not watch. I have no idea why, but it's just, uh, if you want the wild, yeah. bunch, it ain't it, but it fucking rules. Yeah, and I, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that Lou Lombardo was not able to work on Brewster McCloud because he was working on that film uh, with Peck and Paw. And yeah, that is also one of those really nice, sweet, uh, more poetic uh, yeah, butterfly mornings, Paul. baby. I mean, it's, 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 quite, it's like uh, Rogers and Hammerstein got together with Peckinpah to make a film or something. It's totally ridiculous, but I love that movie. And I think uh, oftentimes it's easy to love movies if you feel like they've been neglected. And Robert Altman's very defensive of McCabe and Mrs. Miller because he says all of his films that he loves are usually the ones that fail to perform, or he's, he's very protective of them. He's very protective of Popeye. He's very protective of this. But Robert Altman had a hell of a lot of flop. In the 80s, he barely was able to get movies off the ground because his career was just in tatters, and then he had a bit of a comeback in the late 80s, early 90s. So he probably has a lot of films that he's very protective of, but it seems like in 2020, McCabe and Mrs. Miller's reputation is very secure, thanks to people like Criterion giving it so much love and affection. I mean... From what I've seen, definitely my favorite of his films. 
but yeah, it it is uh, one of my one of my very favorite films. Yeah, um, if I was uh, off the top of my head for people out there who like Robert Altman, I mean, I, I love this uh, the player just because I think that was actually that might be the second Robert Altman film I ever saw. But I saw Popeye a billion times on VHS. That and um, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger were the first two videos we had uh, when we when my uncle lent us a VCR. So we just watched those two over and over again. So I can watch I can screen Popeye in my head. But uh, I love Three Women. I love Nashville. I've been saving California Split, but I might, I mean, 44, I might get hit by a bus tomorrow. Maybe I should just go ahead and watch it just so I can have that experience. Uh, MASH is fantastic. Long Goodbye is fantastic. So, yeah, he's got he's got a lot of good ones. And I, if you people who like political uh, content, his TV show, Tanner 88, which is a TV miniseries that was shot at the same time as the election where they insert uh, Michael Murphy as a candidate in that whole scene, and it, it's a brilliant blending of documentary and reality where people like Bob Dole are like playing along with the gag and treating him like he's a, he's a real candidate. It's a really strange, unusual thing where you're like, am I watching a documentary or a show? Like, what the fuck is this? But Tanner 88 is one of Robert Altman's more unusual and interesting accomplishments. Yeah, and then he uh, appears in the uh, that Dylan Rolling Thunder documentary, the Scorsese one. Yeah, as as uh, Tanner, Tanner right? which totally yeah, which about blew fake. my fucking head off. I was like, what the fuck's going on? They're taking a fictional politician and inserting him into this documentary as a real guy. And that, that was, that was magical. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, I would love to tackle the searchers. Um, I need to read up on the making of it. I've, re- I've read the book, I've read the screenplay. Um, and I've done a lot of research recently on, um, the Comanches and I guess, um, one of the things that I would be interested in doing is Have you read um, this? Empire of the Summer Moon? It's a book I just got on the Comanches that apparently is supposed to be fantastic. But um I yes, it is a great book. Yes. Excellent. Well I might have to read that before we do the searchers because yeah, it seems like the Comanches, they were the most savage of the savage. Like what was that expression like at war with everyone? It was like <laughs> their philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were they were basically the Spartans of the plains uh, uh, of the old West. And so um, I think one, one of the things that like I dislike is the, a sort of political, polit- politically correct approach to the searchers and using it at kind of as a criticism about like the behavior or the things that the Comanche did. And they kind of like, Oh, they're portrayed so bad and stuff. And it's like, well, if you understand what the Comanche w- were about, you would see that the film is not really <laughs> it's, it's it ta- is, if anything is tapping the brakes. Yeah, exactly. And I would say that my only criticism about the portrayal of the Comanche is that they get the details wrong. They don't, you and know, and you got this have, dorky like, white dude they, playing Scar. It's like Come exactly. on. <laughs> and like... also, yeah. And then they have like what Navajo extras or they're speaking, not, you know, so it, it, it's kind of, they're not portraying the tribe correctly. I, I, I would, uh, you know, have criticism against, but in terms of the harshness about how they're portrayed, I, I, I don't think that, uh, I Are think you that's able a, to a sing the theme song to the searchers at the drop of a hat. What I, Oh, I could, but I'm not going to right now. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, I've I've always felt that uh, some some wienery sort of uh, you know film critic uh, has 
you know, trying to trying to protect the Comanche against being defamed um, would be just uh, the, the any Comanche warrior would look at that guy with such disdain. <laughs> he does. And he would say, I don't you yeah, know, Comanche I don't Comanche warriors don't need woke yeah. left-wing bloggers <laughs> making the case on their behalf they did it with the uh, fucking weapons and savagery and being total complete badasses yeah it's one of the things where when it comes to the western i'm so utterly uninterested in what most film critics have to say there are a few film historians obviously love westerns and they're well worth reading but um i've learned a, a long time ago that sadly there's just not a lot of critics who are into westerns but then they, every once in a while you'll have someone like pauline kale who does not like westerns making a very impassioned case defending him and mrs miller so you know there there are exceptions to every rule but i'm always down to tackle any Westerns under the sun from any era. And I, I love doing these episodes and so few podcasts celebrate Westerns. So I'm happy for wrong real to be a home for trying to preserve the legacy of this remarkable genre. Uh, and I'm happy to be a part of that. It's, Beautiful. Uh, well, where it's can always... people find you online? If they want to look at some of your pictures of the wild West or some of your pictures of, uh, of naked ladies or, and all the other lovely things that you, uh, where, when you're putting a uh, pen to paper, uh, David Lambert art, that is uh, the same on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, so you can see a lot of my artwork on any of those platforms. On Twitter, I'm more active uh, beyond just the artwork. I do a lot of things where I analyze aspects of Westerns um, and compare them with history, where they stack up, like what's accurate, what isn't. Um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, I, I always kind of use the, the Western movie genre to then, um, uh, extrapolate further about what the actual history was. I, I kind of try to use it as a tool so that people can learn more about the old West, uh, through the prism of, of films and what they get right and what they get wrong. Um, never try to really use it too much of as uh, criticism of Westerns. Because uh, obviously I love them, um, but I always think that's an interesting window to enter into uh, what what the true history of the West is. So anyone that has any of those interests or just wants to see uh, drawings of naked ladies, follow me on Twitter. Excellent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you haven't watched this movie in a while, definitely revisit it. And hopefully we've uh, awakened your interest both in Robert Altman as well as in Westerns in general. And yeah, as always, it's a great pleasure to be tackling this subject, and it's just fun to be back in action with Wrong Reel. And I've got four or five episodes planned out over the next couple of weeks, so Wrong Reel's back in business. And um, I enjoyed my hiatus, but I'm definitely ready to, to crank out some content. So please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Give it a shout-out on social media if you feel so inclined. And you can always find me on Twitter at Colbrax and all the usual spots. But also check out my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But we can't thank enough for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.